This episode brought to you by the following patrons. Turning Bones, Wes, Dreskel, Kaylee, Aaron, Danielle, Domasaurus, Jeff, Awesome Possum Blossom, Amy, Tia, William, Brandon, Dave, Mandy, Scott, Kate, Isaac, Ori, Karun, Eddie, and Nick B. And all the patrons want you to know you're loved and you're listened to when you're a valuable member of this awesome horror virgin community. And if you want to hang out with us in the Facebook group or Discord servers where we talk daily. Or don't. We're not the boss of you. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Live your life. Yeah, mom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, mom, I'm going to eat my Uncrustable. Oh my god, Mikey actually has an Uncrustable that he's eating right now. Mikey eating an Uncrustable on a podcast is the whitest thing that's ever happened. Time to talk about Get Out! Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for tuning into Horror Virgin, I'm Paige. I'm Mikey. Oh, Mikey has a mouthful of Uncrustable, that's hilarious. And I'm your Horror Virgin Todd, which means I don't like scary movies, but you guys make me watch them. And this week, as Mikey downs the rest of his Uncrustable... (laughs) <laughs> Paige made us watch Get, Get out! out Finally Finally yeah absolutely a lot of people in the Facebook group And on Instagram and stuff like that Have been saying finally to the social posts about it And also me because I love this movie Yeah I honestly am so glad That we're doing it now with you Like I'm very excited about this episode It shocked <laughs> me how good this movie was I knew really? it would be good This movie is great Yes I'm going to be completely honest with you. I knew it was going to be great because it made a shitload of money at the box office and people were talking about it for like three years. Like they just recently stopped talking about this to talk about Candyman. But like this movie was so in the zeitgeist, it has to have been good. Like I was prepared for it to be good. I was surprised at how much of it I like understood. I was afraid that because I am just so white and dumb about it, that (laughs) I was going to miss a lot of the themes and it was just going to be over my head. But I do feel like it was really accessible to an idiot like me, which I appreciate because I'm an idiot. Okay, so this is the only movie that I read a bunch of stuff about it because I, I don't want to fuck this up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so We do take our responsibility as podcasters seriously as much as Mikey and I, you know, downplay it. <laughs> so I read an article, and I wish I could so- uh, cite my sources because now I forgot. You can. Cult Podcast spends the first 20 minutes of every episode doing it. I'm sure. You guys just Google it. That's what I did. And Great. anyway... Uh- <laughs> <laughs> that, that that's what makes the movie great is like he uses the horror tropes to put a white person into the shoes and kind of see you know being treated differently in like the horror movie lens which like m- helps you relate that's, that's what I, I read in a good article about it yeah we should honestly just read the article because it sounds like you're doing a bang up job explaining it <laughs> already fucked this up I'm just yep. gonna go back to Uncrustables and y'all <laughs> Mikey is right though the, this movie makes some of the discomfort accessible in a way that movies I think have struggled to do in the past and yeah. I really appreciate the way this movie does this that's a way better way to say this if you're super (laughs) into this movie which you should be because it's great absolutely watch horror noir if you have not already read the book also if you want it's a fantastic book i have been tweeting pretty much since i joined horror virgin at robin means coleman to try and get her as a guest uh for this but she is busy doing amazing things good for her i am happy for her to do so (laughs) But I'm glad we did finally get to to do this movie. I I think this movie's fantastic. It's taught in schools now. So, like, the film school I went to teaches this movie as a reflection of racism and depictions of racism in movies. And 
I actually watched part of that class this week. Nice. Because somebody put some of it on YouTube and they usually have Jordan Peele speak. And so I was like, this is fascinating. So I have a lot of fun facts. Cool, cool, cool. Because I've obviously really fucked up my research. So I'm glad, <laughs> glad you're here, as always. No, I, I mean, but you stumbled upon part of what I think made this movie so popular is that accessibility. Mm-hmm. Where this movie transcends just being for one particular audience. Yes, it very clearly depicts a black experience. Yeah. But in a way where all audiences can engage with the art form. And I do remember when this movie came out, there were a lot of comments of people being like, I don't get it. And first of all, having seen the movie multiple times, if you don't get it, I can't help you. Like, yeah, I, 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 don't, mean, I don't know how you don't get it. But. Sort of like I said earlier, like I am fully dumb and I got it. Yeah. So like yeah. if you don't get it, I can't I can't help you. But there's an article that Mikey wants you to read. <laughs> I read four articles. (laughs) What I appreciate at the time when people were like, I don't get it, is that people just flat out were like, it's not for you and you need to be okay with the fact that not all art is for you. And I was just like, yes. I mean, speaking as the perspective of a dumb white guy who's had more privilege than he should have had his entire life, I realize that there's a lot of art that is not for me. Like, I can say the same thing about Sex in the City. Like, it's a great TV mm. show. Or Girls this is not for me either. And I can say it's a good show. I just don't like it because it's not for me. I don't need to like it. It's for other people. And that's great. So you have like a, you have a problem with Allison Williams is what you're saying. <laughs> I couldn't tell you who Allison Williams is. She was the villain in this movie. Oh, uh, shit. Is she, is she in Girls? Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so I only watched like the first two episodes of Girls, and I was like, it's well done. It's just not for me, and I haven't, I haven't gone back. Well, if you would have kept watching it, you would have not thought it was well done. <laughs> oh, yeah, it, yeah. No, does that, it go that's downhill true. quick? My bad. Okay. It takes a bit of a tailspin. It, it's okay to not like art that's not for you, but still see the merits of that art. That's great. Yeah. I think even better is to recognize when art was not explicitly made for you, but still enjoy it. I think that's great, too, where it's like, you know, and I think at a certain point, a lot of people, a lot of white people saw this movie as like, oh, this wasn't made for us. I think it is. Yeah, I was about to say that. I feel like it is like, whereas Girls, my example from earlier, wasn't made for me. I do feel like Jordan Peele made this for sort of everyone to be able to understand the experience. Right. So I don't feel like it was just made for white men, but I do feel like it is made in a way that even a dumb white man like me can understand it, which I appreciate. I I think it's made to reflect different experiences for different people who watch it. I think Mm -hmm. I've talked at length about this movie with Crystal Adams. We actually did an episode of Black Card Rehab on this movie. Nice. I find it very, very interesting the way that Crystal relates to this movie differently than I do, because for Crystal, this movie is very validating, where it's this idea of seeing things depicted on screen that she has experienced and her white friends don't usually understand. And it's this idea of like, finally, someone is saying this, someone is putting this on the screen in a way that you cannot deny it. You have to see it. And therefore, hopefully, then see it in your regular life and either call it out or avoid it or whatever. And then on the flip side, as a white person viewing this movie, it is that peek into, I never thought of things that way. Yeah. Or I had not pictured things that way. Or I don't always view things through that lens. I think you're right. I think it does a really great job explaining concepts that I think are 
a lot of people have a hard time understanding and, and I when I was reading about this it was clicking with me like coding I didn't really like like I oh, read yeah. about it but seeing it in this kind of context yeah. really helps explain what it is and how that affects you and then microaggressions I think yeah really to me this film helped me understand that a lot more of just like it gave me a, a lot better perspective on what that looks like because you because that term got was like a hot term for a minute people just like threw it around it's a very real thing though oh yeah, yeah. Well, like what happens to him in this movie, those kind of microaggressions are super real. And it helped me give like a real good understanding of like what that is, how that affects people, things like that. And I knew it, what it was, but like in a movie, like you could put this in a YouTube and be like, this is it. Like you're right. an idiot if you do this. Yeah. It's also like a really great just horror movie, too. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I love this movie. The first time I saw it, I was like, this is spooky. Like it, it is that dread and discomfort it does a great job of it for like 80 percent of the movie and then that last 20 percent shit pops off and yeah. it's amazing mm-hmm. but this movie a because jordan peele is a, a film nerd and has been forever if you are a key and peele fan and watch their sketch show my sister and i have been key and peele fans since mad tv so we're mildly <laughs> wow. obsessed okay yeah but Key and Peele's sketch show has a number of sketches that are specifically referential of specific films and like classic films where it's not a surface level movie joke. It's like a film school movie joke. And so when Jordan Peele announced that he wanted to direct, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And then when he was like specifically horror movies and I was like, a lot of sketches just started to make a lot more sense now. (laughs) And there are a number of things in this movie that we will go through in fun facts that are specifically referential to either other horror movies or famous movies in general that he is kind of calling back to. And I would say, I mean, Keanu, their their first movie that they wrote is great. Super fun. Mm-hmm. I loved Keanu. I thought it was hilarious. Very, I mean, very, yeah. very different than this. I thought it was okay. I, mean, I love it's Keanu. It's definitely worth <laughs> wasting an hour and a half of your life on. Yes. But Keanu's very much a run-of-the-mill comedy. But it's, it's not breaking new ground. This movie, he's like, no, no, no. I'm a director and I'm paying attention. And so people a lot of times think of this as his first movie because I think it's the first one where he really got to direct and kind of establish a style and what a first movie like holy shit for this to be like your first movie movie mm-hmm. i mean i don't know how you top this it's so good well, i think i think this is better than us it is i love us also i do think this is a better story i think it's a tight story you could tell he spent a lot of time on like the pacing of the story and all he rewrote this script 200 times what yeah, that, that checks out wow i mean that is a like hello commitment that's amazing and that's why it <laughs> flows so well because everything is so thought out which is impressive this movie is structured perfectly and paced perfectly i do think it's it's important to acknowledge the fact that we are white people i'll never understand what it's like to be a person of color in this country we're gonna talk about this movie and we're gonna be ignorant about some things and I am not making any assumptions that I am like that I understand. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I think we I completely get what you're saying. And listen, if we say something or make a mistake, feel free to correct us on like Twitter or whatever. Oh, I'm throwing out that I'm a big idiot now because I don't want to, you know, I'm sure oh, I'll say something Mikey, stupid. That's why I led with that in the first like three minutes <laughs> yeah, of this yeah. episode. Yeah. I want to make it clear that I'm an idiot. I circled back around like 10 minutes later. I was like, also, I'm also an idiot. <laughs> Even the articles I read said that. Horror movies are great at looking at social issues and weaving them into a story better than most genres i would say yeah i feel like this is a phenomenal movie about racism and 
I think Us is a really interesting movie about classism. And when you look at it with the undertones of classism and us versus them and poor versus middle and systems that govern all of them, it's a fascinating movie. Even though the story gets a little wonky, what he manages to do in relating the characters to each other in Us is very interesting. But this movie, phenomenal. We should get into talking about it because we're going to yeah. have a lot to say, I'm sure. So kick it off, Paige. Let's do this. We open on a dark sidewalk. A black man is walking through a neighborhood on a phone. And it's a very kind of quiet, nice neighborhood. And we do see that he's being followed by a car, which if you remember at the time, this is extremely reminiscent of the Trayvon Martin case of him kind of being cased through a neighborhood with a car. And it's by design. It's meant to like really depict those situations where he shouldn't need to be afraid, but he can't be assured that he's safe. In this neighborhood. And he's clearly upset. Even before the car really kind of follows him, it's coded as him being nervous. Yeah. I completely get why he's nervous, though. I mean, that car yeah. passes him and turns around and then rolls up real slow next to him. And he decides to leave. He's just like, no. Yeah. Yeah. But... As he looks back, the car door is open. So it's stopped on the sidewalk. The door is open. Before he can even react, a masked figure comes up behind him, knocks him out, and drags him to the car, putting him in the trunk. And then the credits roll. Yeah. So can I just say really quick, because I, I love this guy, that's Lakeith Stanfield. Yes. Uh, and I yes. only really know him from Atlanta, but I love him in Atlanta. He's so good in that role. Oh, yeah. He's phenomenal in a lot of other stuff. And particularly good in this movie. Yes. He embodies the duality of his role so well. Dude, I was going to bring that up in that scene. Yes. When he is standing there and the flash goes off, you immediately see the change. You see him change. It's so good. And same with the mm -hmm. other guy who's the grandfather. Forgive me, I don't remember his name. The character's name is Walter. Yeah, so Walter, when you see that flash and it's immediate, man. It's yes. so good. Both those dudes do such an amazing job of embodying both characters, which I'd imagine has to be super difficult. With both of them, you immediately see the change and you just know. Yeah. And similarly, when Georgina wakes up in the passenger seat of that car, you also know mm -hmm. that she's not oh, changed. Oh, yeah. That's a good point as well, because she is always grandma and is always pissed about her house being caught on fire. Like, yeah, you <laughs> definitely see that as she's waking up that it's not going to go the way he thought it might go when he stopped to pick her up. Right. We'll get to that scene when we get there. Table to table, a table to table, a table. <laughs> <laughs> what we see over the credits is forests out the window of a car. Now, I highly recommend, if you've seen this movie once, Rewatch it because holy shit, is there a ton of stuff on a rewatch? So the credits and text on the credits is the same as the text in the Coagula video. Oh, yeah? Yes. Nice. Okay. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. And I'll talk a little bit in fun facts about the score. Um, but the credits is the first time we hear the score and yeah. the score is very important. We'll talk about it later. It's super eerie. That music is yeah. super eerie. Yeah. Do, you, do you want me to talk about it now? I've got a ton of fun facts, but I think this one is pretty fun. I think, Paige, you should pepper them. Let's pepper them. Let's throw a pepper them in. Yeah. All right. Mm. So Michael Abels <laughs> is the name of the uh, the man who did the score and specifically wrote the theme for Get Out. The theme, Siki Lisa 
Kwa Wahenga is sung in Swahili and it's kind of whisper sung. Yeah. The only English word in the song is brother, which is specifically spoken in English, specifically to refer to Chris as a member of the collective whole, but also to specifically speak to him as an African-American man, a brother. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. According to the composer, the voices in the score represent the soul's of slaves and lynching victims who are warning Chris not to visit Rose's parents. The lyrics Mm. translate to brother run, listen to the elders, listen to the truth, run away, save yourself. Oh man, that is as eerie as it sounds. Yes. And that, that score is very eerie. Yeah, I think this movie does. It's kind of like Midsummer, right? Where like it just gets worse yeah. and worse. You feel more uncomfortable and uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'll say this up front. It's not a super scary movie. It is very suspenseful. I'm not saying it doesn't belong in horror. I'm just saying it's not like a jump scary movie. No, it's more like a your anxiety builds throughout yeah. the film. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a few music stingers that like jump out at you, but it's it's not really scary. I mean, I did jump twice in this movie, but it's not super scary. Yes, but classifying it as horror is very specific because when it was nominated for an Oscar, which we will talk about in Fun Facts, a lot of people tried to justify that by saying it was a thriller and not a horror movie. And Jordan Peele very specifically was like, nah, it's a horror movie. Yeah. Like, horror movies should win Oscars too sometimes. Uh, I respect that a lot. I think it was great of him to say it. So as the score ends after the credits, on a shot of Chris's apartment, the score abruptly changes to Redbone by Childish Gambino. I love Gambino. Hard same. The soundtrack Mm -hmm. for this movie is amazing. But that is also by design because we have come off of a song saying, brother, run, listen to the elders, listen to the truth, run away, save yourself in Swahili, which the audience does not necessarily all speak. I'm sure there are some people who do, much like people who see the thing and speak Norwegian. Norwegian. Yeah, absolutely. I was was thinking the same thing while you were talking about it. I was like, I bet anyone who speaks Swahili knew immediately that he should not go to the house yeah (laughs) well just in case you don't speak swahili the movie's gonna tell you again because the second we see chris's apartment we hear redbone and we hear the stay woke yeah they be creeping like it's telling you too yeah they're gonna find you gonna catch you sleeping (laughs) so like it ends that section of the score with don't close your eyes yeah like on a rewatch you're like oh my god they're telling you from the like the first second of the movie yeah it's so good i will say that this is the second time i saw the movie and i enjoyed it immensely and i liked it the first time a lot i liked it a lot more this time i watched because i was able to catch more stuff like that Mm -hmm. so we see chris's apartment and it is modern clean specifically we see a lot of his photography on the walls i think it's very interesting to note the movie doesn't talk about it a ton but his photography is all black and white yeah all i will say is remember that his photography is in black and white when we talk about it a little bit later with steven root and the way that steven root describes his work and i also think that it's interesting in this scene when we see a few of his pictures on the walls which i kind of really took some time to look at this time they are kind of slice of life photos he's he's taking pictures of things in everyday life so everyday life in black and white keep that in mind when we talk about it later in the movie because i think there's a really marked difference in the way that his photography exists in the film but is described by steven root 
where I think there's a disconnect in how they understand the art mm. specifically. Well, yeah. I mean, Stephen Root is blind, so I definitely understand <laughs> how he would misunderstand the art. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Would you call him like a square root? Because he's <laughs> oh, like, geez. you know, he doesn't really get it. He's square. I think the fact that he doesn't have eyesight is both a very real thing in the film, but I think it's also, there is a metaphor to that. I think so too, but I'm going to let you explain it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I totally know what it means. What do you think it means? So Chris is clearly getting ready. He's showering, shaving. We cut to his girlfriend, Rose, picking out donuts. Uh, she comes home to the apartment and he's looking through some of his photos that he's taken. He's kind of organizing the stuff and packing his camera. And as she comes home, she kind of runs him through all the stuff he'll need for the weekend. Toothbrush, deodorant, cozy clothes. And at this point, he's like, hey, your parents know I'm black, right? Like you told them. And she's like, no, I don't see why it's a big deal. And he's like, hey, you you should probably mention it. She's like, I guess I could tell them, but it'd be weird. Like, I think you're making a big deal out of it, which she does throughout this movie. Yeah. Gaslighting him. Yeah. Where there are multiple, multiple scenes in this movie where he is experiencing clear racism and has recognized it as such or has started to suspect that something is not what it seems. And he comes to her and is like, I believe this is what I am experiencing. And she says, no, of course not. It is it is a white person denying the experiences of a black person, yeah. like in practice in this movie. But it's also done in a very strange way because it is very much like, no, it's not a big deal. It would be weird if I brought it up. Like they're so post that my dad would have voted for Obama a third time if he could have. Like, Which comes up multiple times. No, I, yeah, no, I know. And I sort of think that's hilarious, but it's kind of like putting it back on him, which is yeah. weird. She like verbally acknowledges that racist things are happening to him, but when it comes time to do anything about it, she's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, when it comes time to do anything about it, she can't find her damn keys. Um, Here's what's really interesting. If you rewatch this, watch her because there are so many things that she does or mentions that set up what's going to happen later if you watch the movie knowing that she's in on it you can see it from the beginning yeah it's wild but the first time i saw it i had no idea and so her turn later in the movie i was just like oh my god it is pretty like oh wow i mean i knew she was in on it before the key reveal but it was like pretty close to that that i was like oh yeah. my god she's in on it too oh it's the shoebox scene it's like right before that table it for when we get to the shoebox okay. scene i think the, the first time i saw that scene i had a different perception of what was happening more of a so i married an axe murderer <laughs> okay <laughs> but it's, it's because also in this scene she mentions that he's the first black person that she has dated and right. we clearly see in that shoebox that we find out that that is not the case. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they took a lot of selfies together. I think she was doing that for sort of malicious reasons. I think she was yep. taking pictures to send to her family to be like, yes. hey, here's one I could bring. Yes or no. Which oh, so is terrible. not necessarily in the movie, but that's how that made sense to me. And it's super dark and depressing, but that's how it made sense to me. I think there's there's a cutaway much, much later in the movie that really solidifies that. Yeah. I think some of those photos are really trophies. Yes. Because oh, yeah, that's dark Jesus. too. I think yeah. at a certain point in this movie, you question her involvement yeah. and her level of involvement. Where I think as a white person, we are giving her too much of the benefit of the doubt as a white viewer. Where I, I think 
a black viewer might not, but we're overlooking things that we shouldn't be because the movie is telling us way ahead of time. Yeah. And when we finally get to that point, like when I first saw the the photos, I was like, oh my gosh, she has a type and they're constantly killing her boyfriend. Why didn't she give him a heads up was my first thought. But your first thought should be she's fucking in on it yeah. and she's fucking evil. That was my first thought when I saw it. Then when she can't find the keys, you're like, oh, she's a reluctant participant because she's kind of crying. And then when she reveals that, no, this was by design and she fucking hunts people. Yeah. At that point, I think the shoebox takes on a completely different weight Mm -hmm. in the story. And I do think it's trophies. I think she is pure dag nasty evil. Oh yeah. And the movie get like gives us that turn shocking though. It may be the first time you watch it. And my shoebox, there's just a bunch of pogs. (laughs) <laughs> but I also took those from other people. <laughs> <laughs> they were also trophies. <laughs> Fucking colonizing asshole, taking each other's pogs, taking selfies with people you're going to murder. Behold my slammer. Just like a white person. Um, oh my so- God. <laughs> so. Uh, We cut to them on the road. They're headed to her parents' place. And he tries to smoke a cigarette in the car. And she takes it from him and bugs him about smoking or trying to quit smoking. Now, through the lens of viewing this a second time, you realize it's because they don't want him to, air quotes, damage the merchandise. Yeah. She has what you would call quality control on a production line. Yes. Like, watching this again, I was like, oh, my. And I've seen this again a number of times. But, like, when I watch movies for this show and I'm taking notes, I'm watching a lot closer than I usually do. Same. And that immediately struck me. I was like, oh, my God. That's why everyone makes a big deal about him smoking. That's so terrible. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, okay. I don't think I would date someone who smoked. Mikey, I dated a smoker, and it's not terrible it's not my favorite though i don't like kissing them right after they smoke it's a whole thing yeah i'm allergic to cigarette smoke yeah i don't like it either mikey but i'm not a douche about it <laughs> no no no. there are people who have straight up allergies i know to it. i know yeah. and i just don't believe that mikey is one of those people no i start coughing a lot i really do i mean i cough around smokers too but mainly because i'm a dick about it <laughs> oh, <fuck. laughs> I'm like, <laughs> look at you smoking a cigarette. Anyway, so she shits on him for smoking. Uh, and then he calls Rod, his friend who works at the TSA. And my one of my favorite things, A, most of Lil Rel's dialogue as Rod is ad-libbed. That does not surprise me, but I love it. <laughs> Surprising That's really funny. no one. Yeah, he's amazing in this movie. It's <laughs> so funny. Um, but my one of my favorites is this conversation right here where he's like, they're giving me shit for patting down an elderly woman, but she can still hijack a plane. <laughs> <laughs> and he even goes as far as to say, like, the next 9-11 might be elderly people. You don't know. Yeah, you don't know. <laughs> but this is where we find out that he's watching Chris's dog, Sid, yeah. over the weekend. Love that pup. And he's like, hey, no human food. Rose kind of browbeats him into letting Rod talk to her. Yeah. They talk for a second, but he then takes him off speaker. And Rod is like, hey, don't go to her parents' house. Yeah. This is not a good situation. In a way, Rod is the harbinger. <laughs> I love that. That's a good reading. I, he very yeah. much is. I would also say that the deer is the harbinger, which I know is a weird take, but I think that's what it's meant to be because they're having this kind of playful conversation in the car and then out of nowhere, they hit a deer. Yeah. 
it is very, very jarring. I jumped. It scared yeah. me. Yeah. It's a lot like in the invitation where they hit that coyote. Yes. I was going to bring that up. It felt yeah. exactly like that, except he doesn't have to kill the deer like in the invitation where he kills the coyote. But right. it very much is the same sort of beat. Well, and, and it's this very dark moment on what seems like a happy vacation. Everything's going to be fun. Yeah. But then his friend is like, hey, don't go. Don't go on this. And he's like, it's going to be fine. No, it's not. How long have they been dating? Does it say? Four months. Or five months. I'm sorry, because she corrects him. They do say that during the packing up scene. Okay, yeah. five months. Yeah. Okay. Which is, I think, an understandable amount of time to be dating and then meet someone's parents. Yeah. You think that's a good time? I don't think you can place specific time frames on it. I think it's whenever it's right for your relationship. I think that that is true, Paige. That coming from someone who... Jake met her parents the first date they had and yeah. Mikey having had many dates but not yet having met Alexis parents is trying to feel out when that is appropriate no her parents live far away my mom lives 30 minutes away wait has she not met your mom no oh man introduce Alexis to your mom you monster because my mom doesn't understand like boundaries no she's like <laughs> Come over for formal meatloaf on set. I'm like, can formal we like, meatloaf? <laughs> is meatloaf wearing a tie? Like, is meatloaf gonna be there? He's like, I would do anything, anything for love. mom. I'd put on some <laughs> cufflinks and a tie. <laughs> I would do anything for mom, but I won't meet Alexa. <sighs> Well, <laughs> <laughs> that joke's a lot funnier if you picture Meatloaf wearing a tie singing that. I think there's a certain point at which if you have not met somebody's parents, then it's concerning. Like if she came in town and we like did something just us three, but she always wanted to do something with like my brother and his girlfriend too. And I'm like, that's like a full family. No, that's a better idea. That is a better idea, Mikey. That's a great way for her to meet your mom. Yeah. Because then it's not one-on-one. -on -one. Yes. Yeah. I love my mom, but my mom is a lot. Yeah. So like. Anytime I can introduce her to new people, not even Natalie, but like just new people in general, I want to have other people there that they can get a break from mom. It spreads the awkward out. Mm. Yeah. So they don't get cornered. I would like to do like a quick meeting and then like build up to dinner. Does that make sense? Do the dinner with multiple people. Yeah. Because she'll, uh. she'll be sitting next to you. So she she's in a safe space or whatever. Honestly, let's just do a meetup and invite Alexa and your mom to the meetup. <laughs> <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> That's so funny that that was your third date with Alexa. Always do it in a group. Yeah. Anyway, so back to this movie. So they stop the car and get out to look at the deer. By the way, the sound of the dying deer is Jordan Peele. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's funny. So the deer has actually done some damage to the car. It's broken headlight and it's broken a mirror. Now, very conspicuously, it is the mirror on Chris's side of the car. Yes, and I'll say this, as someone who has lived at a time in his life in a rural area in the South, if you hit a deer, it's going to mess up your car. Like, it's not going to break one headlight and a mirror. Like, you will not be able to drive that car. Like, Yeah, depending on how you hit it, yeah. Yeah, like, it is done. It's sort of laughable in the movie because they hit it and it flies into the woods Yeah, completely sideways. It doesn't go forward like it would if you hit it well it depends because i have seen them thrown it could have been a doe a deer it, a female deer <laughs> i knew Paige couldn't not do it <laughs> i was fine with it ending up on the other side of the road i think it's primarily here just to set a tone yeah i mean it did not bother me at all like i didn't count this movie yeah. down for that at all because it's not about this 
Right. Uh, and he does go and walk into the forest, but the deer is dying. It, there's no hope for that deer. Yeah. Back at the car. His girlfriend says, buck up. <laughs> we we do hear the officer say to her, in the future, the number is animal control. I did think that was really funny. Yeah. That's spot on. <laughs> no, I'm sure it is, Mikey. But uh, the officer basically starts asking them questions like, are you coming up from the city? And then he turns to Chris and says, can I see your license? And she, Rose, is like, he wasn't driving. And he's like, I just asked to see his ID. And Chris is willingly going to give that ID. Yeah. And Rose really fights it. Now, on a first viewing, this definitely seems like she is standing up for him and trying oh, no. to use her white p- privilege. But on a no, second viewing. Yeah, I've read this differently. Yeah, because in case he goes missing, they don't want any record of him. being No anywhere. paper trail. Uh-huh. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, so it's one of those things that initially seems like she's on his side, but it is insidious. She is trying to avoid a paper trail. And also she's speaking for him, which is kind of shitty because like, you know, she is escalating a situation that maybe didn't need to be escalated but it was because she didn't want a paper trail and also escalating a situation with a police officer is a very different situation if you're her than if you're him yes because let me give you an example so like i got pulled over because i just do not get my tags renewed i think it's a ridiculous thing to do i don't i don't renew my tag (laughs) how's that working out great I honestly renew my tags probably once every three or four years. I'll give you an example. I got pulled over and the police officer was super nice. He literally came up to my car and said, hey, this was like 2020. He was like, hey, your car was last renewed in 2018. Like, what's the story there? Like, he just wanted to know what the deal was with my tags. So I told him. And he was like, well, okay, I'm going to write you a ticket, but you're going to want to get this fixed tomorrow. And I was like, well, I don't really have time. Like, I was just giving him shit. And he was like, trust me, you're going to want it. I was like, well, I don't know, incentivize me. Like, I am Uh. saying these things to a police officer, and he's just like laughing it off. Like, it's funny. And I recognize that that's not something everyone can do. Um, also, apparently, they treat tags real differently in Tennessee than they do in California. Do you know why, Paige? No. I know the answer to this, because I lived in California, too. What is the answer? So, yeah. my car was stolen twice when I lived in California, because it's a nightmare state. Yeah. The police cruisers in California will automatically scan the tags around them. Oh, oh yeah, really? constantly. And will, like, flag them. That's how my car was saved twice after being stolen twice. Yeah. Like, the vehicle recovery rate in California when I my car was stolen five years ago... It was it was seventy five percent because they do this. Is it like autom- like something scanning it? Yes. The computer, the camera, automatically scans it, Mikey. Yeah. And then it will flag their machine saying this car here is out of date or stolen or whatever. Yeah, we don't have that in Nashville. But yeah, so we don't have that here. That's why okay. tags don't matter. It, when I was in California, I had to keep it up to date because even if you were sitting in a parking lot, you'd see a ticket on your car for it. My tags are expired right now. Jeez. They've been expired since 2019. What? Yeah. So, like, all of that to say, I realize that escalating something with a police officer is something that not everyone is able to do in a situation and feel safe. Okay, okay, okay. You role play the officer. Oh, Mikey, I love when we role play the officer. Oh, jeez. Oh, God. Yeah, I'll be you. Do you know why I pulled you over? What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't believe in expired tags. I knew you were going to give me cancer. 
Oh, jeez. If Nashville actually cared about tags and started giving people like me tickets, they would have enough money to upgrade their cruisers to have that automatic scanny thing. Okay, so I know the inside scoop of this. Oh. It was voted down by our city council because it's like- Good job, guys. Personal freedom. Yeah. That is a good job because in California, particularly in Los Angeles, this was a phenomenon that- I, I think I maybe didn't see as much growing up. And in Los Angeles, it is very apparent. We call them the high-speed chase vehicles. They're souped-up Dodge Chargers with crazy engines that have the scanner. And they're built specifically to chase people on the freeway. They're the freeway chasers. Like, they are terrifying. That sounds incredibly irresponsible and incredibly dangerous. And it sounds like instead of spending a shitload of money on cars that just really just put people's life in danger, they should like find better uses for that money. Uh, like homelessness. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of stuff. That's why the city of Los Angeles continually is furious about its budget at all times. Anyways, back to the movie. The police officer does let them go away. And Chris perceived this as her trying to protect him. So he's like, that was hot. And she was like, of course, like I got you. But then we drive up to her parents' house where the first person we see is the groundskeeper who is black. Yeah. And waves at the car. And she just kind of explains. Like, she explains it away as like, oh, that's the groundskeeper. Which isn't a great explanation, though, right? Like, no. But also, I mean, you may have a groundskeeper that happens to be black. That's not the craziest thing. It's one of those things that, like, it, it sets up a tiny red flag. And then I think when he meets Georgina, it's like big red flag because they arrive at the house. Her parents hug him, welcome him in. The groundskeeper is watching them from the yard. Uh, They kind of tell their parents about hitting a deer and they take them on a tour of the house and we see Missy, who is the mom's office because she's a mental health professional. Oh, she's not. I'm not claiming her. No, but that's what she's portrayed (laughs) as in the movie. Yeah, that's what they say her job is, Mikey. Yes. What you could not hear was an insane amount of eye roll coming off of Mikey's mic. Here's the thing. I agree (laughs) with you. I'm just saying that that is what the movie has set her up as. Yeah. Uh, We meet Jeremy, who's Rose's little brother, uh, who we hear is studying medicine although there's no way and like all like all little brothers he's like a total asshole he's a total asshole we also find out that her dad is a neurosurgeon that's going to be important later as he's taking them on the tour he's showing off all of the things he's picked up at the places that he's traveled and the irony that he is stealing cultural objects from other people to display in his home is completely lost on him where he's just like it's great to experience another person's culture and it's like that you're just taking it <laughs> like what are you doing yeah i mean the joke i want to make is he's doing what white people have done through what they call museums for the past thousand years <laughs> yes uh one of our our guests in rotation at cult podcast is a field archaeologist who specializes in repatriating artifacts That's to awesome. the people that they come from and to hear him shout about museums amazing yeah i mean it's really gross if you think about it they're like hey can we have our stuff back and they're like no but if you want to come over here and pay us the ticket price of admission you can come check out your stuff that we stole from you yeah thankfully what a lot of people do now is that they're working to repatriate artifacts and then have them on loan 
at the museum so that they eventually return them. Yeah, yeah, that I'm much more comfortable with because then at least the people of wherever that artifact is from have loaned it. Yes, but what's really important in this scene is he's pointing out all of these kind of artifacts and pictures on the wall is the picture of his father. Now, this is something that I really kind of clued into this time around where he talks about his dad running in the same heat as Jesse Owens and being beat by him. Yeah. Jesse Owens, of course, goes on to run in the Olympics in the only Olympics where Germany's Hitler was present. So he essentially beats he wins in front of Hitler. And it's this kind of landmark victory of a black man winning in front of Hitler. Yeah, it was the 36 Olympics. So it was like before the war started, really. Uh, right. But like height of Nazism. It's like a, one of the first broadcast, internationally broadcast events. It was. Yes. Yeah. And at the time, TVs were rare. So like the fact that it was broadcast was kind of unique as well. And people would gather with the like few TVs around to watch it. And honestly, if you want to see some great footage of a messed out Hitler tweaking his ass off, oh. watch him in those games because they will cut away from the athletes to Hitler. And he's like rocking back and forth and shaking his leg. And you're like, wow. Wow, this guy's on drugs. He's just really antsy about wanting to do the wave. No, no, no. <laughs> he is very much on drugs. Yeah, I know. I know. That's just a joke. When's the wave going to come back around again? It can be both. <laughs> it can be both. It can be both. <laughs> anyway, the way he talks about his dad in relation to Jesse Owens, it's almost as if he's claiming Jesse Owens' victory for his dad in a weird way where he's treating his dad running in that same heat as also a victory. I mean, it is pretty gross. Yeah. Although I don't know, this is like one of those things that is borderline and you could definitely see it either way. And that's why what I think is so great about this movie is because it really eases you into this stuff. And I definitely do think having watched the movie that you should read this scene that way. But in the moment when you're first watching it, you're like, Yes. That's a weird thing to bring up. It's a weird thing to like have, but it was a cultural touchstone for your his right. father's generation. It's cool that he has a personal story and relationship to it. So like, I get it, question mark? Well, so I think you're right. I think after seeing the movie one time, you definitely read it the first way, which is this is insidious. And once you realize that the groundskeeper, who is a fast runner and is depicted as running a lot of times, is grandpa, and you realize that he has essentially taken over a black body to run in the way that he could not, then it is very insidious. Yeah. Yeah. When you realize that, and when you see Walter run the first time, you're like, that's a weird way to run. But then when you think back, well, when it's revealed that he's grandpa, and you think back to like, oh shit, that is how they ran in Chariots of Fire, and that was around the same time. You're like, oh shit, that's gross. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, But I do think that the movie does a great job of like easing you into that stuff. And that's what I mean. Like, if my granddad had a picture of him and Jesse Owens, I'd be like, oh, that's a dope picture picture yeah that's cool that's a huge historical dude and a huge historical moment i get that but like in the context of what's happening it's disgusting yeah 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 the tour continues they go to the kitchen where they run into georgina the housekeeper and this i think is where the big red flag comes up where he's like i have now met two people on staff in this house and both are black why do these white people have black servants? Like, this is modern day. That is not something that is necessarily culturally acceptable 
even if you are paying them and they are, you know, it is a job and they are making money, it's not a good look. It's not a good look. No. It's pretty rare, right? I would hope. Not a lot of people can afford live-in help, right? That's like a one percenter kind of thing. Live-in help, yes, is a, is like I would say a one percenter kind of thing. Uh, I would say some level of house staff that's not live-in is a lot more common than you would think, like a maid or something like that, where someone shows up and cleans your house a couple times a week. Yeah. I only know one person who is firmly in the 1%, and they do have someone who lives in a house on their property who takes care of a lot of stuff around their house and farm, but they are white, and they are, like, well compensated. It seems like she's just, like, a family friend. I mean, I know because I know them that she's on staff, you know? But, like, it would be weird if I showed up there and it had plantation vibes. It has plantation vibes in the movie has, to yes. be clear the person i'm talking about it's not that way at all or right. the help vibes Ooh, the help vibes is another great example of mm-hmm. that i mean once we find out what's really going on it makes a lot more sense as to why they're there and how they're there but from an outsider looking in at this point in the movie when he doesn't know what all is happening I, if i were in his shoes i'd feel very uncomfortable me too i'd want to leave yeah but they do explain it away they're like i forget who it is i know it's the dad the dad says as this uh, I think yeah, it's right in this, this scene. scene yeah he's like walking them out to the back where the gazebo is or whatever and he says to Chris he, he says I know I know what you're thinking yeah I understand white family black servants and he's like I, I wasn't gonna say anything but like yes and and he's like hey we hired them to take care of my parents and when my parents died we couldn't bear to just let them go so we kept them on which I do think is like a really good excuse but that still would yes. make me comfortable with it obviously that's a lie uh, you know but like that is a compassionate excuse it is but it's not because if you yeah, rewatch okay, it okay the yeah. way the way that he says it is when they died, I couldn't bear to let them go. But he doesn't define who that them is. Yeah. Because what we will find out is what he means is when his parents died, he couldn't bear to let his parents go. God, that's so right, Paige. That's nuts. And has used these people to keep his parents, quote unquote, alive. Yeah. By essentially usurping the bodies of these people. Now, here's another thing that you should note. Georgina has a wig. uh, Walter has a hat. Yeah. And then later, Logan, I think it's Logan, has a hat as well. It covers the stitches on the front of their heads that we see later in the film. You do see that on Walter in the last scene you see them in. You see it on Georgina as well. Oh, okay, okay. So not only... Is he evil and racist? He's a bad surgeon. Yeah. <laughs> he leaves the big scars. That is the scar that it would leave on you if they did this operation to you. But the fact that he's not trying to do it minimally invasively is nuts. So, I mean, he's racist. Why are we discussing whether he's a good surgeon or not? Just saying, if you do good stitches, you leave smaller scars. That's all I'm saying. It doesn't matter because the operation shouldn't take place in the first place. Anyway, this is the second time we hear him or we hear the refrain of, I would have voted for Obama for a third term. Which is now Bradley Whitford saying it, who I love, and I think he's great. He will always be the Bradley Whitford from West Wing for me, which I loved him (laughs) in that show, and he's great in everything he does. He's great in this, but man, he's great in this, which means he's terrible. (laughs) He did not fully understand that they were making fun of white liberals in this scene, which Mm -hmm. I I, I don't know how you could read this script and not understand that. Yeah, it's pretty Um, clear. 
But I also think that his casting as, I, I mean, the West Wing is in many ways held up as kind of liberal TV history. I think in many ways it played to the destruction of our democracy, but I still yes. love it as a TV show. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> but so I, I feel like when a lot of people think of truly like a quote unquote air quotes one of the good ones, white liberals, they would think of Bradley Whitford. His character from West Wing. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so seeing him in this role, I think in some ways, by design, is meant for you to not immediately suspect him because you're like, well, he's quote unquote one of the good ones. And then what we're going to find is, no, <laughs> no, he's not. You could still say things like this and be terrible. So so Bradley Whitford then asks Chris kind of about his upbringing. They're, they're kind of sitting around the table outside drinking iced tea. And he talks about how his dad was kind of absent and his mom passed away when he was 11 in a hit and run accident. Yeah. But he doesn't like talking about it. And it's clear that he's kind of itching for a cigarette. He's kind of. Um, he's jonesing he absolutely is he's like getting antsy he's bouncing his arms yeah. and bradley whitford even says are you looking for a smoke yeah, yeah. well and we find out it's because bradley whitford used to smoke uh and the reason he didn't is because missy does hypnosis and they're trying to recommend it to him i realize that's what's said in the scene i don't think it's true i think 100 percent they're setting it up so he's more comfortable with the hypnotizing that is going to take place yeah, I agree. Yeah. You can't trust anything Bradley Whitford says. It's unethical to treat anyone that you... I don't want to talk about no, it. No, Mikey, you should talk about it. It's unethical to treat anybody that you have another... Rela you can't have a dual relationship. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Because she is his girlfriend's mom, it is unethical for... Um, her, her to be a treating provider. Also, she's evil, so there's that too. Yeah. yeah, and in this scene, she's still stirring the tea, right? Well, and then hypnosis doesn't really work like that. Like, the, I mean, hypnotherapy is a thing, but not like this. I mean, it's a really good device in this horror movie, but like that's super not how it works, and then people respond differently to hypnosis. Like, some people are so more susceptible than others, and all this other stuff, but like, generally, you can't just sit at a kitchen table and be tricked into being hypnotized. That's generally not how it works. So, as they're talking around the table, we find out that there's an event this weekend. It's a backyard party that they've done kind of in honor of the grandparents and it's the same day every year and That's weird. that concept is weird like take it out of a horror movie if i went to a girl's house and she's like oh this is the picnic we have for my dead grandparents every year i'd be like what the fuck? you know what would be weirder mikey if you were dating rose and she was like oh is that this weekend the weekend yeah. that we've done it on every i'm not gonna falter for that because I'm not great with calendars. <laughs> so, I mean, like, I'm going to, like, meet people where they're at or whatever. Uh, <laughs> wow. Okay, so I just got high-roaded, and Mikey is defending a racist. Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> I am defending people who mix up calendar dates. There is a difference. I, yeah, believe me. If it's not on my Outlook calendar, it's not happening. I understand, Mikey. But I'm just saying, like, if I went back to somebody's house and they're like, oh, yeah, this is that weekend where, like, we have a weird party celebrating my dead grandparents. And I was like... Like, what do you do during that party? Did they save a bunch of people in their death? Like, if they Schindlered a list, I can understand yeah, having okay. a party every year, Way inviting better. the kids of the people they saved. Like, that's cool. We have a family ornament exchange that we have been doing for over 35 years. And my grandparents are older, and eventually someday they will die. But I would assume 
that we will continue to do that in their honor because they started it. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. That makes more sense. Not just like a dinner, you know, like a we're going to play bocce ball and talk about my grandparents. That wasn't weird to me, especially if these were all their grandparents' friends. You know, and their family friends. Yeah, I guess. Because I'd seen it before in watching this scene, I'm like, oh, it's a lie. It doesn't matter. They do this all the time. Yes. It's not a once a year thing. This is all bullshit. But yeah, the story is a little strange. Yeah. It's a red flag that I've been like, hmm. Yeah. So as Georgina is pouring iced tea, she's overhearing them and she pauses for a second and seems to kind of look out into the distance almost like spacing out for a sec and over pours mm-hmm. and then recovers and is like I'm so sorry and Missy the mother tells her to go lay down and she's like yes I, I think I will Yeah. and what I think this is and we'll find out later in the movie that they did multiple attempts at the process and then eventually finally got it right air quotes right it's still terrible it's right. like nothing about this is right but whatever and I think you can see in the movie who went first. And I think Georgina is one of the first because I feel like the person who Georgina's body actually belongs to fights harder mm-hmm. than most, where we see her kind of peek through a few times. And I think maybe she's the earliest one. That actress does such a great job when she like, does. her eyes tear up and stuff. It's so oh creepy. Oh my God, so good. A lot of the actors who are playing these dual roles really mm-hmm. do amazing work with their eyes specifically. And like mm-hmm. their face is stone, like not really making an expression, but they're tearing up. Like that yes. has to be so difficult to do. But I, Paige, I did not see a flash in this scene like you do with the other mm-hmm. trigger type moments where the yeah. uh, underlying personality comes back back to the surface like the actual owner of that body comes back well georgina is the only one who comes back without flashes that's what i'm saying so that's why i think you might be right like i think there may be something with the hypnosis with georgina where maybe she didn't get as deep into the sunken place or whatever that she is able to fight her way out a little bit easier without like a visual trigger right so this is where her brother shows up And we cut to them having dinner and he's telling embarrassing stories about her and this party they threw and how she accidentally bit a guy's tongue the first time he tried to French her. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, Missy leaves to go get dessert. And Jeremy, the brother, starts this conversation of like, what sports do you like, Chris? But then keeps pressing him of like, have you street fighted? Do you like fighting? Do you like UFC? And he's like, it's too brutal for me, but like I did judo after school. And then he says, with your frame and your genetics, if you really trained, you'd be a fucking beast. Which, of course, is a reference to back in history when white people would make their slaves fight each other for their amusement. Like, it's a horrific reference, but like the fact that he keeps pressing it is so uncomfortable. It's gross. Like, you hate Jeremy from Jump Street. He's the worst. And I was glad we got to see him get killed twice. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Missy comes back out with carrot cake, and he keeps talking about fighting and actually gets up to try and kind of grapple with Chris. Yeah, like at the table. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Sit down, you idiot. And Chris says to him, I have a no play fighting drunk people rule, which is a great rule to have, by the way. It is a great rule because that escalates immediately. But also, I think Chris is acutely aware that 
A, he is not drunk, but Jeremy clearly is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he is a black man who is definitely going to hurt this white man if they play fight because he's drunk and he's not actually like it would be accidental because he is just not impaired but that's a very difficult position to be put in where I think he thinks that he would immediately be blamed for it and it would be bad like it's bad optics yeah it is terrible optics it's also the first time you've met your girlfriend's parents and you're still very much in the mode of I want you to like me because I love your daughter like Mm. You just don't want to like the first night you meet your potential new in-laws. You don't right. want to beat the shit out of their drunk, terrible boy. Yeah, I mean, you'll have mm-hmm. the instinct, but you got to fight it. Yeah, because <laughs> he's an asshole. Yeah, I would definitely understand the desire to beat Jeremy's ass, but you can't do it on night one. He yeah. definitely had like a little fuzzy mustache in middle school. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) But like just right under his nose? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So we cut to the bedroom after dinner, and Rose is like apologizing for her family and complaining about their essentially, quote-unquote, inherent racism that she never noticed before. But it's very performative, where she's looking for him to validate her anger. Yeah, I I do feel like this is more of like the gaslighting part of it, where she's like... yeah. Trying to, in a way, acknowledge what happened was weird, but also be like, but we're still some of the good ones. We're fine. You're going to be fine here. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. You're safe. When essentially he's not at all. Yeah. But more or less trying to make him feel comfortable when there are clear signs he should not be. Yeah. And and she even gives him a heads up about the party the next day. Although it is too late because he can't leave. Right. She's like, hey, the party is going to be rough because they're so white and old. But again, there's nothing he could do about it. He can't leave. Right. You know, she has the keys, like, you know, whatever. And he just says, well, with my genetic makeup, shit's going to go down because I'm a beast. And he does it as a joke. But like, it was not a joke when her brother said it. No. No. But I do understand because I'm the sort of person, like, I'll try and make light of weird moments to sort of like Mm -hmm. clear the tension on it. So like, I totally got why he made that joke. Yeah. And it is a funny joke, but like, he should not be as comfortable as he is right now. It's a natural response. Response to anxiety and stress yeah. for some people. Yeah. And I also make jokes in high intensity situations. I don't think I've ever heard you once make a joke, Mikey. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely never gotten me in trouble at work. Never got me in trouble <laughs> in my personal life. Never pissed anybody off. Never made anybody feel uncomfortable. It's just something that never happened. Yeah. I always correctly pronounce the types of bread. I don't want to talk about bread because that was a tragic <laughs> event. And I don't want to make any jokes about it. It's my biggest failure in making comedy. In making comedy, Paige. In baking comedy. (laughs) God dang it. I just didn't rise to the occasion. That's the joke you got right on the My Best Friend's Wedding episode. Yeah. God dang it. (laughs) Oh, man. If you guys are sleeping on Romance in the Pod, you're missing some really lavish jokes. Yeah, it's a slice of fried gold. (laughs) He wakes up later that night and he's going to go outside to have a cigarette. And he sneaks outside, looks inside the house and sees that Georgina is awake, just kind of walking through the halls. Yeah. Not creepy at all. Very creepy. He starts smoking. He looks up and he sees the groundskeeper who runs straight at him. This is so creepy. And the music is like, it's like, it's yeah. so it's creepy. So creepy. Because he's fully in long, he's in his groundskeeper uniform, like yeah. the, the yeah. long, the jacket and the pants and stuff. Like, why wouldn't they change to go running? Because he's not actually out running. He's trying to scare him. Yeah. Oh, is he? Oh, okay. 
Yeah, that's yeah. the vibe I got too. I mean, because like if you're out for a run, no matter the time of day or night, you're gonna probably wear like shorts and a t-shirt, right? Right. But he like layered up for this run. Mm-hmm. He's like Todd running. Once again, it's people <laughs> trying to stop him from smoking. Yeah. But also, if you are addicted to cigarettes, in some ways, it is a stress management thing. So if you're constantly keeping someone from smoking and they're not actively trying to quit, like if it's not intentional or planned. That can also just make someone more stressed and more uncomfortable. And make them want to smoke more. Yeah. yeah. I get uncomfortable when anybody anybody sprints at me. Yeah. Oh, you should, because it's terrifying. Uh, and he literally sprints directly at him and then just glances off to the side. And as he kind of, like, jumps back, he also sees that Georgina is now looking out the window, using it kind of as a mirror, and then walks away. And she's checking her hair. In hindsight, I think she's checking the scar. Yes. Well, and there's also, we see... I think it's the scene. He actually sees her pull her wig back and adjust it. Yeah, and we don't see the scar because he's pretty far away. Right. But yeah, she absolutely is doing that. I think that's either this scene or when he's taking pictures later. Anyway, he comes inside because I think he's just like, fuck this. Yeah. <laughs> like enough, enough with the weirdness. Um, And he walks past Missy's office where she is waiting for him. Having tea. I hate the mom the most. Rose is the worst in my mind because yeah, same. to be sociopathic to the level that you can be a girlfriend to someone for like five months only to do this that's bonkers i mean honestly i feel like she's worse than jeremy who yeah. like just goes out and kills people more or less right yeah he just kidnaps people right but yeah. she toys with them for five months yeah like it's all bad but i feel like hers is much more like creepy and sexually se- oh, it's like more sociopathic right you have to fake loving someone yeah the end result is murder right so it's like equally bad but fuck. this is why i think they're trophies because i think she takes delight in the process yeah that's fair um anyway so missy the mom Catherine keener essentially guilts him into sitting down with her yeah because he's a guest in her house feels like he can't say no she puts him in a very difficult situation yeah. and he's still in that like i want you to like me sort of phase yeah. with the parents like this conversation is uncomfortable from the jump when she's like do you still smoke you smoke around my daughter do you smoke in front of my daughter yeah, yeah. she's mm-hmm. my daughter and i've been like oh boy here we go I've just been like, I'm going to go to my default when you're having uncomfortable conversations with a girlfriend's parents, which is like, I have to poop. I have to go poop. Is that your default? I mean, no one can argue with I have to go poop as a thing to get out of a conversation. I mean, that is sort of genius, but it's like a Mikey (laughs) version of genius to where like you have to admit that you got to drop a steamy deuce, but it works. (laughs) Yeah. Like if you're in a meeting and it's like really uncomfortable or you're just at a thing that's really uncomfortable, you're just like, guys, I drink a lot of coffee this morning. Like I not going to lie to you. It's hit me real hard. I've got to go. <laughs> the best part is like even if they follow you or they know like you're in the house or whatever, you could just go sit on a toilet for 15 minutes, get on your phone and be like, so glad I'm out of that conversation. <laughs> but no, I mean to refocus it back on the movie and away oh, sorry, from Mikey's sorry, poops. Yeah. I do think it's very, very rude of her to do this, but I sort yes. of understand why he sits down and sort of placates it because he's yeah. very much in that mode of I want you to like me because I'm in love with your daughter. Well, and I don't think he expects it to get as invasive as it immediately gets. Oh, no, it goes from, hey, have a seat to very personal, very sad, like traumatic conversation, like very quickly. Has anybody been in a conversation like this where like it goes from like polite to like weirdly invasive immediately? Yes. I, okay. I figured you asked because you had a story you wanted to tell, Mikey, so please tell it. Okay, when Scott was born, you can bleep these names out or whatever. I helped 
and go home from the hospital, which is like something they kind of tricked me into. They're like, yeah, you can come visit on this day. And they're like, can you help us get the baby back home? That's how I ended up installing one of their sinks. Chris was like, hey, come yeah. over and hang yeah. out. And then I yeah. found myself replacing their bathroom sink. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good friend. Matt's mom was there and like, they were like, we're going to take a nap. And I, and I was they're like, do you need me to help with stuff? And they're like, yeah. So me and Matt's mom are like, helping like doing stuff and she's like oh it's like my first time having a conversation with her and she's like oh hello. like what do you do for work blah, 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 blah. so like why are you single are your parents divorced <laughs> it's oh, like I was, I, I was like i've got to poop i've got to poop right now <laughs> the funny thing is my mom would do that too oh i mean i just told her i was like i gotta poop that explains why when i met uh, his mom she was like yeah i really like mikey but he has like I think he might have ibs <laughs> <laughs> oh, because you're just constantly pooping. Yeah, he's always in the bathroom. <laughs> I was trying to figure out a good acronym, like in before the shit hits the fan. <laughs> <laughs> My trick when I'm having conversations like that, especially with like quote unquote in-laws or that sort of situation, is that they need you to like them as much as you need them to like you. So like it's a level playing field, even though it doesn't necessarily feel that way all the time. In this movie, it very much oh, is not. No, I mean <laughs> they're yeah. gonna murder this. <laughs> Poor guy. Because like, she immediately goes into hypnotizing him. Well, first, before that, she essentially gets him to blame himself for his own trauma. Yeah. Just super fun. Also, she's not a good therapist. Yeah. At a certain point in the movie, I wonder if she is a therapist at all. I don't think so. I know that's how they have portrayed her, but... I, I don't think she is. I think it's part of the ruse. Yeah, I think it's all in service of setting up the hypnotism as a normal thing. Right. And just making him more comfortable with the initial hypnotizing, right? Because that's right. something that I assume every mental health professional does, Mikey. Is that right? <laughs> I'm assuming that you're well-versed in hypnotizing. Yeah, I just go out there with my pocket watch and like, <laughs> be like don't be sad, bitch. And then I leave. <laughs> and then he's like, that's $120. The hours up. No, okay. So hypnotherapy exists, but it's not like the movies, right? It's like yeah. I honestly, I know nothing about hypnotherapy outside of what's in the movies. So I don't know anything. Please educate me. Generally, in mental health practice, it does exist. It's not super common. Uh, I'm not sure about the research. It's not something where they can just trick you into it. You have to be pretty susceptible. Like sometimes there's like a subset amount of people it doesn't work on, and it's a big, big subset. Because you have to have like a like, yes page. Oh, no. I was just saying I'm one of those people. Oh, I'm one of those people too. If you're seeing a therapist and they're doing that, I, just do your research. I, I'm very skeptical of like pop psychology and things of that nature that aren't evidence-based research-backed. And like hypnotherapy is like old and Freudian kind of crap. So I'm not a big believer on it. But I know that you can't stir a teapot and then get someone to fall into their dark place. Terrifying concept for a horror movie. And I was able to suspend the disbelief even as a mental health professional and like get terrified for him. But like, that is not how it works. And then like, if someone's trying to hypnotize you, like probably get the fuck out of there. <laughs> uh, as someone with ADHD, I wonder if that makes me harder to hypnotize because I can't concentrate long enough. Wait, do we all have ADHD here? Cause Mikey, I know you, yes. of course we do. Every fucking podcaster has ADHD. So does Mondo. Yeah. He's not diagnosed, but like we all knew Mondo. was. <laughs> Okay, awesome. I literally have not worked with a podcaster who's not. It is so aggressively common in our industry. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, actually. Literally every successful podcaster I know has ADD or ADHD. I mean, like, I just want a podcast where I make fun of Todd for like an hour and a half. No one would listen. I mean, some people would listen to that, but like not enough to pay the bills. So that's the first episode I would listen to. That podcast is a crying medium <laughs> for me specifically. 
Paige, head in hand, chuckling to herself quietly. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, well, that's a perfect example of the entire time we were having that conversation, Todd was participating, but also thinking of what words rhyme with diet. Yep. Just like when, <laughs> when Todd and I were talking about my best friend's wedding. And spending the whole time being like, what words rhyme with bread? Yep. What are what are bread words? Yep. Well, that's yeah. because this conversation has me sighing. Oh, because it also rhymes with dying. You'd have to work it in a sighing medium, though, because yeah. that's the bit yeah, on yeah, that yeah, yeah, rhyme yeah. scheme. Oh. Comedy! <laughs> you know who's a sighing medium? Is the mom that in this guy's movie. mom, because he's smoking. Yes! <laughs> back on track. Let's do it, baby. <laughs> Can't believe Mikey got us back on track. she's just like, ugh. T again. Tink, 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 tink. Uh, so she does it kind of gradually as she walks him through his mother's death. And we do get some flashbacks about it. And then she just tells him to essentially after she makes him feel like it was his fault. Well, which is something that people do. Like, I understand why he thought it was his fault. And we find yeah, out later absolutely. that he was watching TV and didn't go out and look for her, and she died. He was a child. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, he blames himself, which is super common. Like, I have dealt with a lot of that with my brother's accident. Therapy pro tip: I always ask people if your best friend came to you and said, asked the same, like, "Hey, I blame myself for my brother's death." What would you say to them? And you would be like, "Why'd you kill your brother? <laughs> what did you do?" <laughs> Why did you do that? <laughs> he was your brother. You loved him. Why did you kill Why him? Why did you ask Dustin to change the radio station, causing him to lose focus and drive off the road into a phone pole? Why'd you fuck that truck? It's because Nickelback was on and any one of us would have done the same. It wasn't Nickelback. I think it was Backstreet Boys, to be honest with you. Oh well, then God. you've got no excuse because that's a bop. I'm an in How sick dare man, Paige. I am an in-sync man. Same shit. <laughs> it really is. I am not going to make the obvious bye-bye-bye joke. I just want us to move on. But not all of that to say I do understand why he feels that way because that's something I had to get over in therapy as well but therapy really helped with that and i'm pretty sure that that tactic that you were talking about mikey that i made a horrible joke about is sort of the aha moment or that was the catalyst that gave me the aha moment of oh it wasn't my fault people want life to make sense right yeah. and so right. for for life to make sense there has to be a reason why a bad thing happened to them and a lot of it's very easy for people to blame themselves when bad things happen to them and that's not realistic and that's not what happened but it's life you can't make sense of it sometimes bad things very bad things happen to you yeah and it's not your fault and that's why like mainly goodwill hunting is what i do i didn't really pay attention in college i just go into a session and i'm like it's not your fault it's not your fault it's not your fault and then when they cry i just charge them money <laughs> Even though they're still upset about the fact that their brother is gone, oh. baby. Oh, oh my God. God. Gone. He's gone. Boy, you're gone. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I do love that song. Anyway, so he is now paralyzed. Yeah. He cannot move. And he's like, why can't I move? And then she just says, sink into the floor. He does. Yeah, he does straight up Nightmare on Elm Street into that floor. Yeah. Sick horror reference, bro. Thank you. He Johnny Thanks. dips into that floor, baby. He Johnny dips into that floor. Uh, so 
Again, thinking of rhyming words. Yep. Uh, so, <laughs> so this is the first introduction we have to the sunken place. We don't know what it's called yet, but this is the sunken place. And he can see up and out kind of like a TV. I will say the one time I got to be on propofol going under was like this. Was it? I've never been put on anesthesia. I haven't been on regular anesthesia. I've only been on propofol. Okay. Oh, I was on regular anesthesia. It was like falling asleep. They're like, count down to 10. I was like, good night. Propofol, they say count to three because you only make it to three. That shit hits hard. I took it right around when this movie came out. So like it happened to me and then I saw this movie and I was like, that's what it was. That's what it felt like Uh, because it felt like I fell in through my eyes and I could see out through my eyes as I fell down into my body. And then the next thing I knew, they were like, okay, we're done. It's been an hour and I had no concept of the time. Yeah. It was fucking great. Highly recommend. (laughs) If you guys get your hands on the propofol, have some fun responsibly yeah so he is frozen in time in real life and she then leans over and speaks into the square that he can see out of which by the way looks like a tv yeah it does it reminds me of the tv we see at the end well yes and it made me wonder if everyone's looks like a tv or if his specifically does because that's what his trauma was tied to oh that's interesting is that he was watching tv when his mother died yeah i don't know but she leans over and says now you're in the sunken place And she closes his eyes and everything goes black. Yeah. He wakes up the next morning in the clothes from the night before in a cold sweat and his phone is unplugged, but he does have texts from Rod. So he plugs the phone back in and gets dressed and goes to the party where he walks around taking pictures with his camera, as he always would, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, he's a photographer. I mean, he's there to meet yeah. people, but he's also sort of working and just like doing what he does. What what makes him feel comfortable? Yeah. Uh, he sees Georgina in the window and she kind of sees him outside with the camera. And so he kind of walks away because it's almost this feeling of discomfort that she's looking at him. Mm-hmm. Well, it's sort of like you're peeping on someone through the window and you got yeah. caught. I think this is where she's like adjusting her wig or doing something that is sort of strange strange to see someone do and then yeah she sees him and he like pretends like he was taking a picture somewhere else takes a picture and walks away yeah mm-hmm. and he walks over to the groundskeeper and goes to talk to him yeah and he basically starts out with like hey you know how's it going they're working you hard out here huh and he just says nothing i don't want to be doing yeah, and he's out there chopping wood like yeah dealing with his feelings <laughs> <laughs> this is the one movie where I don't th- feel like he's dealing with his feelings by chopping wood. Most times it is that. This movie, I don't think so. But he basically is like, I didn't get to meet you up close. I'm Chris. And he's like, oh, I know who you are. She's lovely. One of a kind. Top of the line. A real doggone keeper. Which is such a strange turn of phrase. I don't yes. think it is. Knowing that he's the grandpa. and the If you know that oh, now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Georgina uses like a uh, tattletale. And like older vernacular, yes. which I was like, well, so is the other guy they run into at the party yes. where like all of these younger African-American characters talk like older white people. And it's very weird. It is. Well, yeah, with Georgina, she doesn't understand the word snitch and he has to say tattletale, which is mm-hmm. a great one that I have in my notes. And yes, I think it's a credit to the actors yeah. who yes. portray those roles. It's very Stepford Wives. Yeah, it is. Because while it is, quote unquote, old people, it's more than that. It's not human yeah. seeming. Yeah. Yeah. And he does say, I'm sorry about last night with my exercise. I didn't mean to scare you. And he then says, I noticed that you were in the office for some time. Did it work? And then Chris is uncomfortable and is like, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, he's like, I have to go poop. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, but the groundskeeper then just says, I'm going to get back to work and mind my own, own business. business. Yeah. <laughs> we cut to, he goes back inside the house and he's talking to Rose and he's like, I think your mom hypnotized me. I went out for some air. I don't remember anything after that. I, I don't want cigarettes, but I had fucked up dreams that I was trapped in this hole. And like, what's Walter's deal? He yeah. seems hostile, but strange. And she's like, well, I'll talk to my dad and he's like no no I'm not trying to like tattle on somebody just what's happening what, who are these people what's going on and he's like well maybe he likes you and she just goes are are you fucking with me you think I have a chance yeah. <laughs> which is funny but it's insidious because she is gaslighting him yeah, she is right. trying to like what you are thinking is ridiculous when it's not ridiculous at all. And she knows it. Yeah. I mean, it's just more gaslighting, but it is gaslighting through like the humor of making a joke about the whole situation, which is right. also sort of like what a girlfriend would probably do if she was like trying to calm down her boyfriend, you know, like everything's okay. But like it's gaslighting in the situation because everything's not okay. And she knows it. Right. And she's just like trying to lull him into this like false sense of security. Right. Now, what I think is really interesting, and it's not something I had remembered from watching this previous times, but we get a shot out the window of the guests arriving and Walter, the groundskeeper, is giving each of them like a big hug. Yeah, he's the one greeting them, not Bradley Whitford. Right. Because it is his party. Oh, I did not catch that. And we're saying party, but it's not a party. It's an auction. Yes, and he's greeting them personally because he was their friend. Yeah. And so they recognize him. So they go to the party and he gets basically a montage of meeting various offensive white people. <laughs> yeah. They're saying things like, oh, do you like playing golf? I know Tiger. He's the best. And it's just this kind of like, I have a black friend. It does feel very much like I have a black friend. Uh, yeah. When he just said that he's played golf once and is not very good at it. Like, yes. I mean, of course he knows who Tiger Woods is because Everybody knows who Tiger Woods is, but like, who cares if you know Tiger Woods? Yeah, he's not a golfer. He doesn't right? care. Uh, he then meets uh, another couple, Nelson and Lisa, and Nelson is in a wheelchair and is clearly elderly. Lisa's a little bit younger, and she just reaches out and squeezes his muscles, and he's <sighs> clearly uncomfortable. She doesn't yes. ask. She just immediately assumes ownership over his body for that moment it's, it's the same so idea gross. when like when people just touch other people's hair without asking like oh yeah it's, yeah it's that same vibe of like i have the agency to do this i can exert my will over your body without any consent well and then she's like asking the girlfriend like is he good in bed and like so uncomfortable this is like where like the microaggression stuff is like really it's really on display here in this scene really right, on display yeah. is it true what they say and, and like you think you're giving a compliment but that is like super racist i also feel like it is easy to think that some of the things that are happening in this montage are overblown but they are not like the things people will just say and do is a astounding yeah. at how rude and racist people will be just directly to somebody's face. Like, it's not good behind closed doors either, but like, don't yeah, the just reach out and grab people and ask how they are in bed. How would you like it if somebody did that to you? It's so offensive. Man, this is one of those things that I am super lucky to have worked with two African-American women who were like peers of mine and were also super like, open to like call me out on my shit if that makes yeah. sense like 
I and I think it's because they knew I was just some dumb white guy who like didn't know any better, and they took it from that. Like they approached it from a place of you probably shouldn't ask um, black women about their hair, Todd. It's not appropriate to do that, right? I can't remember specifically what it was, but it was a few things that, like, they would have to be like, hey, don't say that. Culturally, that's weird. From my understanding, it's a lot better to do what you're talking about. And this is what I do with people I've worked with and, and like, in friends and people that I have grown up with. Is like, the concept of colorblindness is, like, not as counterintuitive, right? Like, like, I don't see color, but really you should be, like, learning cultural and racial differences and celebrating them. And, like... And like if you like you should be able to ask, you know, your coworker or your friend be like, hey, you correct me if I do something wrong, if I'm hanging out or like doing something like I want to learn. Like, I know that you came up in a completely different, you know, culture than I did. So please teach me about your culture. And like, I want to know and like, I don't want to offend. But also it is not necessarily other people's job. When Google exists, right. yeah, exactly. it's not their job. That's what I mean by like, I was very fortunate to have two women that were like. Who expended the yeah. emotional energy yeah, they to were do like that on for you. Board yes. to teach me how to not be as dumb as I was. And I still think I'm dumb when it comes to stuff like that. And I'm sure I've said things on this podcast that have offended people not meaning to, you know, just because that's the danger of like living out loud like we do on a podcast. Yeah, like you take your pills, uh, water first. <laughs> Like a man. That's the way a man does it, Mikey. Oh. But even with that, I, I feel like there are some things that I'm like, you would never do this to a white person. So why would you think it's appropriate to do it to Absolutely. anyone? I don't know if I should leave this in the podcast, but I once saw someone and it was one of the two ladies I was referencing earlier. Someone got up and walked over to her grabbed her hair and said is this your real hair like with it in her hand she bought it so it's hers and it's real oh my fuck god page fuck off the way yeah. <laughs> ebony literally said i got the receipt in my pocket baby it's real and it's real mine yes and i was like oh shit but also where do you get off Asking if other Paige, people have real hair. We were at it work. exists. It was at work. That that should have been a one-way ticket to HR. <laughs> I don't know what happened because that I was not involved in that transaction or anything, but I was so blown away by how rude that was. And man, that was like one of those moments I was like, shit, man, I don't have to deal with any of this stuff. Because I, I was like just, just out of college. Like it was one of those like eye-opening moments of like, oh my God. People outside of, like, my direct family and, like, friends have to deal with a whole bunch of shit that I've never even had to consider. Oh, I the amount of shit that people would say to me as a fat person in retail, and I know that that is oh. minimal compared to what people of color experience, but to have people just walk up to me and say, can you go get that so you can get your exercise for today? <laughs> Like, God, yeah, yeah, holy like, shit, that's bonkers. So I'm like, I know people have been brutal to me and it doesn't even compare. Yeah. But this exceptionally, I was just like, I hate it when people do this. Yeah. It's so gross. But this scene is like one of those things. Like if you haven't had the benefit of having like two coworkers nicely explain to you how you're sort of not being great right now for whatever thing. If you haven't had that experience, this scene or this like vignette of scenes, because it's a few different interactions. Yeah. Like really can open your eyes to some of that stuff being like, oh my God, you probably shouldn't just grab his muscles and ask his girlfriend if he's got a big dick or whatever the fuck she was trying to get at with that. I mean, that's basically what she said. I mean, that's basically. But that's sort of what she's implying. Yeah. Now, the next one is similarly just as offensive in a different way because again, these vignettes are great. Yeah. 
Yeah. The guys like fairer skin was in favor, but now black is in fashion, which is the implication that blackness is just something that you can put on when it suits you. Well, Paige, in this movie, that is like what happens. Yes. And it makes it seem like they are like shopping for different models every year, which was so They are. That, that is what is happening. Yeah, like I, man, I hated this so much, especially thinking back to this conversation when you've seen the movie. Like it just has a whole yes. new weird connotation. Well, I, I feel like there's a lot of, of white people who will be like, it's great to be black right now. Black people are cool yeah and are they are discounting yeah. the actual black experience that comes with prejudice and experienced hardship that a black person can't just take off when they please and a white person can put on the trappings of that and not experience that same interaction with society it's those same people who are like on facebook or like at dinner being like you know this is the hardest time to be a, a white straight guy right now oh you're my like god. oh my god you're like this is such a bad read on this i was like oh i hate that conversation altogether and i've had that conversation with somebody that said that and i was like well you're confusing classism with racism and this country has a problem with both but its problem with racism is way more difficult than its problem with classism and they're two different things and you should educate yourself on both of them not only are they different things they are intersectional where you can be both a victim of racism and classism so well yes. and because of the way that america has systemically disenfranchised minorities a lot of times they are intersectional because a lot of yeah. people in minority groups have been marginalized to certain areas where they weren't able to make as much money because also redlining yeah, yeah. or they weren't hired just, yeah this yeah. movie is brilliant how it takes kind of the things of the day like some of the racist tropes of the day and kind of weaves them into their horror too i mean it's brilliant it is. Yes. But I will say that we do have a class problem in this country and that yeah. white people do experience at a certain level some class issues. But they don't also experience the much bigger racism issues right. that people at that same class. Like, I grew up very poor and white. I grew up with kids I went to high school with. I have friends that were african-american that i'm still friends with today and i recognize that my life even though i was poorer than they were i had much more access to privilege than they did because right. of my whiteness and that's something i didn't recognize when i was in high school but having had conversations with them throughout our life because we've grown up together i've realized that like my friend sheldon has helped me with like it didn't come to me as an original thought is all i'm trying to say like I had people in my life who were very generous with their emotional like currency and they were willing to tell me what it's actually like. So I yeah. had a lot of really great friends that opened my eyes to some of that. But all of that is to say we do have a, a class problem in this country, but it's not as big as the race problem that also a lot of African-Americans and minority groups experience all the time every day. Right. Which is probably why in this next scene, Chris finds the other black guy at the party because he's like, thank goodness. Hopefully you won't say something horrifically offensive to my face and I, I can get a break <laughs> for just a few minutes. Yeah. So uh, he approaches him and it is very clear almost immediately that there is something wrong, much like the groundskeeper and like Georgina, that there is an unnaturalness to their conversation. And within literally seconds, Logan, although we find out later that his actual name is Andre, Logan's wife, Philomena, comes over and she is considerably older than him and white. It's a little confusing where you're, it seems out of place and they then go to interact with another group of older white people. She kind of pulls him away. And what I noticed on this viewing is when he goes to the other white people, he spins to show them his body yeah. like, check it out. Yeah, like check out this year's model. 
And yes. we do know that he is probably the most recent body swap. He's been missing for six months. Yeah. So we know at this point something is amiss. Something is awry, right? Because he's talking to like Rod throughout the course of this movie. And Rod's like, I bet it's some freaky sex slave shit. And like, yeah. this is sort of reinforcing that it might be Idea. that, right? Because it's like an older white woman who has this younger black man who is like on her arm. And I mean, we come to find out that that's her husband. They've probably been married for 50 years. And- Which does not mean that he's not a sex slave. Just put it <laughs> Well, I will argue that Andre is. He is a yeah, passenger sex slave. Yeah, it's terrible. It is terrible. So Chris kind of wanders over by the gazebo where Stephen Root is sitting. I love Stephen Root. Yeah. He's terrible in this, but I mean, he's great in this, but he's a bad person. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I was watching this earlier today, Jake just walked behind me and just went, Stephen Root. (laughs) That is how you should greet Stephen Root whenever he comes on your screen. Stephen Root. (laughs) He kind of tries to win Chris over where he's like, they're all ignorant. I'm sorry. They're old white people. They don't know. Yeah. I'm Jim. I, I own art galleries. He's a blind art dealer. And he's like, I actually know who you are. I know your work. My assistant describes people's work to me. And then I decide whether or not to buy it. Now, here's what I find fascinating. And this was something that I caught on this rewatch where we've seen Chris's photos and they're just kind of everyday life. Yeah. But Stephen Root describes them as brutal and melancholic, which oh, I, I yeah. Felt in some ways because like one of them is just a flower in the sidewalk or like a chain link fence and I feel like this is a roundabout way of Stephen Root considering the subject of Chris's work brutal and melancholic this idea that like you're taking pictures of the black experience and that's brutal and sad as opposed to Chris just expressing his experience Okay, so two things. I definitely could see how if you grew up in a level of privilege that someone from a different culture did not grow up in, them showing you their regular life might seem oppressive and sad. But he could also have a shitty assistant who's playing tricks on him. (laughs) That's true. That is true. Be like, it's a picture of a stabbed cat. (laughs) He's definitely asking $17,000. What? I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I did a visual gag again on the podcast. What? But much like <laughs> Stephen Root's characters, our listeners can't see what you're doing, Mikey. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what she, Paige is saying is like he's projecting what he thinks. I do think Paige is right, and that's the reason it's in here. But it's also very easy to make the "he's blind, he wouldn't know" joke. Yeah, I mean, and well, like, what's his assistant thinking? Because he's his assistant is definitely helping him at the auction. Oh, absolutely. His assistant's in on it. What I also think is really interesting in this scene is he's like, I used to be a photographer. I just didn't really have the eye. And then he suddenly lost his sight to a genetic disease. Yes. Which for him, he's basically like, I don't care what color the person is. I I want your eye. I didn't care that you were black. So I'm better than these other people. And it's like, no, you're still subjugating another person. Yeah, technically, you're exactly the same as every one of these other people. You're exactly as bad. You're just lying to yourself about how you're better because it doesn't matter what skin color they are. Right. I mean, I think it's another metaphor of the colorblindness thing. You are absolutely right. Because Steve 
Even Root is the person that says, I don't see color and therefore I am not racist, right. but is still willing to take advantage of subjugation of black people. That's what it is. It's the person that's like, I don't see color, but I'm also not going to recognize the injustices in our system right. or the inequality in our system. Yes. So he goes upstairs and his phone is unplugged again and it's dead. So he plugs it back in. He sees Georgina down the hall and he kind of waves Rose into the room and is like, I think Georgina's unplugging my phone. Like, I'm not trying to tattle on her, but like, I don't know what's going on. I don't think she likes me. I don't think she likes that I'm with you. Which I I don't think it's true. I think it's I think it's the girlfriend unplugging the phone. I think it doesn't matter. I don't think it matters because it's all a part of this ploy to make him unreachable and make him go, quote unquote, missing while they murder him. But Paige, you were about to bring up a point, and I think you should bring up that point. He thinks that Georgina doesn't like them being together. Right. And I don't know if that's true. It doesn't examine that too much. But knowing that Georgina is an old grandmother and that this is how Rose has chosen to, quote unquote, procure the people that they are going to then murder, I think it's possible that she is just also a super racist old lady. Yeah. <laughs> And is also delighting in the destruction of black bodies. But also, it could just be part of, like, we can't let him talk to the outside. But I mean, it doesn't really get explored. I did think it was interesting that he brought up the, I don't think she likes us being together part. Yeah. Well, and Rose treats that as you're projecting. Oh, because she's gaslighting him. That's her stance the whole movie, more or less. Right. Yeah. But he could very well be right. I don't know. Yeah. So Rose leaves. He talks to Rod about the party and he's like, hey, I got hypnotized, but I also don't want cigarettes. So maybe it worked. And Rod is like, get the fuck out because this is some Jeffrey Dahmer sex sleeve shit. I saw it on Annie. I love this section, man. It was so funny. He is so good in this movie. One of the things that he kind of highlights in this phone call is he's like, the black people here feel it seems like they missed the movement. This implication of like they are they seem to be fine living in this white world where they are kind of less than. And he at that point is like probably hypnotized, putting him in a trance and then fucking the shit out of them, <laughs> which is a horrifying reality that turns out to be basically true. Although it well, some extra steps. Yeah, there yeah. are some extra steps because he doesn't know about the I mean just crazy plot of like switching brains or whatever right yeah and uh georgina slash grandma comes in and is like i owe you apology i was just confused no funny business and he says oh i wasn't trying to snitch and this is when he has to like tattletale yeah she's like visibly confused the whole time yeah and he kind of finishes up by saying all i know is sometimes if there's too many white people i get nervous and georgina gasps but then starts to cry and laugh at the same time and it is one of the most unnerving scenes of this movie and it's all in her performance which is so good because you're seeing the tears streak down her cheek and she's just like no 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 yeah that's not my experience at all but she is clearly crying while laughing and it is oof the the first time i saw it it gave me the creeps yeah it is so creepy man the lady who plays her in this movie is amazing yes and she just briskly leaves and he's just like that bitch is crazy but now that we like know what it is it's like i think that was her fighting to get out same so he comes back downstairs and he gets introduced to some friends 
but again, they're callous and, and not great. Microaggressions show up again. And one of them asks, uh, for the African-American experience, do you see it as an advantage or a disadvantage? Which is such a ridiculous question. It's it's treating somebody like they're a specimen. Like, it's crazy. It's a crazy thing to ask. It is crazy. Did you notice to ask the question? Yes, I did. Yeah. So do you have any theories as to why that is? Yes and no. I have some wild theories that may be wrong. My theory is, and this is complicated, the man who asks the question is Asian and appears to specifically be Japanese. He has a Japanese name. They are a very homogenous society where most of them are all Japanese. Yep. That is a a reality of their nation. And so... It's posed almost as if it would be a curiosity where it's like, I do not understand your point of view. I am curious as to whether or not my life would be better if I were to take on that persona. What's your theory? Okay, so I have a different theory, although I really like yours. So my theory is, and I don't know whose is right. You know, we might both be wrong. I have no idea. But my theory is that whenever you talk to, I'll just say racists, they will sometimes say, well, if you look at like Japanese people who are immigrants to this oh, country, yes, 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 they've yes, yes, done yes. so much better than African-Americans uh, yeah. who have been here longer. So you're thinking maybe he's trying to compare. Yes. I wondered if when Jordan Peele was writing that, he chose to make that character Asian, who's the only Japanese character in this movie. I wonder if he did that on purpose to sort of address that. that the way that white supremacists codify Asians as yes. quote unquote industrious yeah. as opposed to African-Americans that they will often codify as lazy, yep. even though those are monolithic statements that don't actually describe people. It's it's stereotyping. Absolutely. Yeah. So like that's, the, that's that was that's my theory on it. Although, again, I have no idea who's right. We might both be right. We might both be wrong. I have no idea. I honestly think you're right. I think that that is a reference to the way white people view different races and how they interact mm-hmm. with different races. And remember, this is a party thrown by white people. Yep. So that does not su- surprise me. This is a good minority, quote unquote. Yeah. So like I've, yes. I grew up in the South. I've born and raised in Nashville and everyone in that I've met that like is from Nashville. Like just the city of Nashville is very cool and not like this. But if you drive 40 minutes outside Nashville, it gets really sketch. And I've had some conversations in like Hickson, Tennessee, where I was like, I mean, that's super racist what you're saying. And they're like, I don't know. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. First off, the devil doesn't need an advocate. Secondly, <laughs> it's still super racist. Because I've had specific conversations like that, I was like aware of that because that shit drives yeah. me crazy. Well, and that characterization is in its own way racist and abusive because it it paints people as one thing. And then if you don't live up to it, you are considered less than or atypical. And so- I I do think it is someone who has come from a different kind of racism comparing the experience. That is very interesting. Yeah. If I ever meet Jordan Peele, I will ask him. Oh, I'd love to meet Jordan Peele. I'd have so many questions, one of which would be about this movie. The rest, about the Gremlins 2 sketch of Key and Peele. I have so many questions about that sketch. You mean a vegetable gremlin? (laughs) I love it. It's in the movie. It's in the movie. I have found that Jordan Peele is very intentional. So I cannot imagine that this would have... not been a deliberate choice. 
Well, he's intentional about every other detail in this Everything. movie. Everything. Yeah. So I, I think you are onto something, Todd. I think that this is a way of depicting the kind of, air quotes, good minority dilemma. Yeah. Now, he kind of tries to direct the question to Logan and Logan starts answering it and just saying, for the most part, it's been good. And then he takes out his phone and tries to take a photo. Yeah. To send to Rod. I assume at this point to just be like, look at how this fool is dressed. Like, what is happening? Um, Because he's in like a sun hat and like a linen kind of like sport coat. I mean, he's dressed like a 60-year-old rich white man would dress. Yes! But as soon as that camera flashes, he changes immediately. Yeah. And I mean, the physicality of his face where you instantly know is so good. And he does get the little nosebleed. But the fact that he just immediately is like, get out, get out, get the fuck out of here and runs at him. And knowing what we know now, you know that he is trying to save him. He's trying to save his life. Yeah. Uh, But they drag Logan away and they say that it was a seizure and that the flash set him off. And so he's like, I'm so sorry. Yeah. But then essentially they rehypnotize him. Yeah, they definitely do. I I did love that Chris like later, like in, in a later scene is like, I have a cousin that has seizures. That is not a seizure, baby. Yeah, I mean, a lot of seizures look a lot of different way, but, you know, yes, I, I do understand his concern. Yeah. Well, he, he yelled at him to get out. He, he yelled, yelled the name, the name of, the of the movie. movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah. So they're all going to play, quote, sparklers and bingo. And Rose is like, we're going to go for a walk. Yeah. Which is by design because she knows that they're about to have an auction for her boyfriend and she just needs to well, get yeah, him out Yeah, because they there. can't do sparklers because they have to rehypnotize yeah, everybody. Yeah. They rehypnotize everybody. Sparklers or fireworks would be terrible around this crowd, right? Right. Yes. But this is where on their walk when he says that wasn't a seizure and she's like, my dad's a, like a neurosurgeon. That's what he said it was. And that's what it was. And then he says, this is going to sound weird. But when he came at me, it felt like I knew him. And she's like, oh, like you've met Logan before? And he's like, yes and no. And he basically says to her, I think your mom got in my head. And I've been feeling all out of sorts. Like, it's not good. And we cut back to everyone else bidding in a silent auction. Oh, man. When I saw this, because this whole thing, all the microaggression scenes, like mm-hmm. it feels sort of like it's an auction. Like they're like parading him around as a piece of meat. Like I was still sort of like, oh, my God, it literally is an auction. Like, yes. I yes. could not believe it was just a straight up auction. I think it's also very notable. And this is something that I love kind of pointing out in this movie. It takes place in a gazebo. Yeah. <laughs> which is a very kind of typified That's a white, white people southern shit. plantation. It's white people yeah, shit. I get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you watch this film closely, as the movie goes on, the house gets more and more what I will call stereotypically white, where they start you start to see things around the house that are a little more, quote unquote, country or flowery, older, you know, because it is the grandparents house. And when we get into the scene where he gets to the basement is where it's the most obvious But I think the gazebo is one of those things that kind of shows up and you're like, oh, that's like extra white. (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of like so the house sort of transforms a little bit. It's still the same house, but it it starts to accentuate things that I would associate with like Annabellum South. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, it does. Yes. Which is something that, like, I, just because of the geography around where I live, and Mikey, I'm sure you know when I say Antebellum South what I'm talking about. Because uh, Yeah, I lived in Mississippi for six oh, years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you lived in it, too. Like, I mean, there was a lot of that around Nashville, too, in that time period. Like, that pre-Civil War area South is what it feels like towards the end of this movie. Yes. The Gone with the Wind style yes. kind of stuff. It's such a subtle change, but the more you rewatch it, the more you see pieces of it. Yeah. So... On their walk, Chris is like, I just want to go. And she's like, without me? And he's like, whatever you want. I I just can't be here. Right. And we cut back and they pull out of the auction so we see more of it and see that they're specifically bidding on Chris. Like, what you suspected it might be is 100% what it is. Yeah, I mean, Bradley Whitford is up there, like, doing hand gestures because it is a silent auction. Yeah. But there's a photo of Chris. Like, they're clearly... Yes, on an easel that they set yeah, up. <laughs> they're clearly bidding on Chris. Yeah, and he's sold to Stephen Root. Yeah. So, meanwhile, he and Rose are still on, out on their walk and he tells her about the night his mom died where he didn't call 911 he just sat there watching TV cuz he's a kid and yeah. kids don't know what to do all the time adults don't always know what to do all the time it's it's not his fault but what we find out is that his mom in the hit and run survived and then bled out yeah. and so he believes if he had called and people were looking for her she might have survived but there's no way to know that like it is outside his mm -hmm. control it's very sad that he blames himself but it's not, he shouldn't be. And this is something that her mom kind of planted in his head that I really hate. I honestly think it's been there all along because I do feel like that is something that yeah. when someone close to you dies in a traumatic way, you typically look for things to blame yourself yeah. for it because you are the only thing that you quote unquote have control over. And sort of like what Mikey right. was talking about earlier, you want to be able to explain away right. the bad things in your life. So you having control helps you feel like you have control over what happened, but because it went negatively, you place blame on yourself for that outcome. And it's not at all your fault, Like, but it, it is something that, I mean, I had to work through in therapy, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I'm sure a lot of people yeah. deal with that specifically. Yeah, and I think it's at the surface for him right now because of her mom, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, she brought it to the surface. I mean, he yeah, even says yeah. during the hypnotism scene, I don't want to think about this. Right. But he basically tells her, like, you're all I got. I'm not going to abandon you, but this has been terrible. And so she says, let's go home. Yeah. This sucks. I'll make up a reason to leave. Let's go. So they come back and the party is ending. They go upstairs and literally as they walk in the house, everyone's watching them as they come inside, almost with anticipation. Like everyone is leaving and they're watching him and her walk right. back in. And in the guy who said black is so in this year or whatever, yes. he's the one that says, bye, Chris, it was nice to meet you and then leave yes and you see everyone leave except for steven root yes in the bathroom he finds the pic of logan on his phone and sends it to rod yeah and his phone immediately rings and it's rod and he's like that's trey he's the guy that dated Teresa's sister veronica that it, we know that guy yeah immediately chris is like that is him i knew i knew him yeah. but he's different He's married to this white lady. Like, we don't know what's going on. I did. I, love it. I, I loved how Rob immediately was like, sex slave. Like, I called it. <laughs> He's so funny in this movie. And so at that point, Rod is like, get out of there. Yeah. Uh, but his phone dies. 
because somebody's been unplugging it. Yeah, because it didn't have a full charge. Yeah. Didn't have a full charge. It turned out to be a cat. (laughs) That is my life. (laughs) So he turns to Rose and is like, are you packing? Because we got to go and we got to go now. Yeah. Because now he knows like something bad's going on. And she says, why? What's happening? He's like, I'll tell you in the car, but we got to go right now. He starts shoving stuff in his bag. Yeah. And he turns and sees the door open under the eaves, which he spotted kind of like the night before. But it's essentially one of those, like in Paranormal Activity 3, it's where uh, it's Toby, where Toby lived. lived. Yeah, that's where Toby told the secret. Right. Toby's secrets. Toby's secrets. Oh, that's a throwback. I that like is that. a throwback, yeah. But in this episode, Toby's secrets are, this isn't the first time she's brought a black man home. Get or out. Or a woman. Oh, yeah. No, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. So he finds a red shoebox, opens it. This is where he finds all the pictures of all of the people that she has brought home. All of the other victims. Trophies. Yeah, but the pictures are of the victims. Yeah. Yes. The pictures mm-hmm. themselves are the trophies, but yes. Right. Uh, and she interrupts him. He's like, oh, I'm just looking for my camera. She hands it to him and he says, do you have the keys? And she's like, yeah, they're in my bag somewhere. I'll, I'll find them. And she... and is kind of looking for the keys for a second and he's like let's do this downstairs like let's- yeah he's like we can do this on the move <laughs> Yeah. So they go downstairs and her brother's blocking the door and her mom is offering tea and he's like, no, uh, we're leaving. Rose, can you get the keys? And she's like, yeah, we have to be at the vet the first thing in the morning for the dog. And she does a great job of really looking like she's looking for those keys. She does do like when I. okay. so I knew she was evil the first time I saw it because I knew from the shoebox scene. Yeah. Yeah. And she does really look. I mean, it's got to be hard to act like you really are looking for keys. Well, I think what this really did for me was. We know she's involved somehow. Reluctantly, willingly, we're not sure. We don't know the full scope of her involvement at this point. We just know that somehow she's involved and it's not great. And as she's looking for the keys, she's getting upset that she can't find them. And it's almost this feeling of discomfort of like, I I also need to get out of here with you. And so I am looking for the keys, but she just can't find them, can't find them. And then Bradley Whitford has this speech of like, fire is a reflection of our own mortality because even the sun will die someday but we are divine. We are the gods trapped in cocoons. And as she's still looking for the keys, he yells at her. He's like, "I give me those keys now. Yeah. Because he's like, we are not safe. And she just holds them up and is like, oh, these keys? Like th- these ones that she's clearly had the whole time? The whole time. They were around her finger in the bag. Like she had yeah. them in her hand already. The reason you hear the keys jingling around is because she's just moving her hand back and forth and they're already in her hand because when he's like, get the keys, let's leave now, she immediately holds them up and says, you know, I can't give them to you, right? Yeah. Oh, and you realize that she's a willing participant. She's been in on it the whole time and she is pure evil in this scene. So he tries to rush her brother. Uh, to try and kind of tackle him to get out. And as he does, her mom just taps twice on that teacup and he drops like a stone. Oh man, he goes back into that sunken place and then the mom has Bradley Whitford and Jeremy pick him up and take him into the basement. Right. And as they take him down there... I think they even say, I think the mom even says in this scene, because Jeremy's like, I can get him by myself. And I think the mom says You've some of the You've damaged him enough already. Yeah, which makes it feel more like merchandise Oh, I hated it. Yes. It's really creepy when Rose then leans over and is like, you were one of my favorites. Bye. Oh, like That's pretty much my experience of being broken up with. You're one of my favorites, but bye. Bye. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, at TSA, Rod (laughs) is calling Chris's voicemail and he's not getting any responses. He goes to the apartment. He feeds the dog. He calls again. He opens the computer and looks up Andre Hayworth, who is the person that Logan stole the body from, essentially. Yeah, he's the person we saw get taken at the very beginning. But this is where he sees the articles that he's been missing for like six months. And that he was a jazz musician. So specifically, they're targeting people with unique abilities. Really? Okay. So I did not see that he was a jazz musician. I didn't see that either. Paige, you're so good at this. Thank you. (laughs) One of the articles mentions he was a jazz musician. And then later, when she's eating those dry Fruit Loops, uh, she's looking up famous black people yeah. to try and target them. Yeah, when she's starting the hunt again. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we cut down to the basement where Chris is strapped to a chair. This basement is the most brightly lit room in the movie. Yeah. And I think it's because this is when everything comes to light. This is when we learn the truth. And so everything is bright and obvious. However, it is also paneled in a very like Southern plantation style, that kind of like dark wood library feel. But then it also has a foosball and a ping pong ball and bocce balls, almost like a frat house. It's very (laughs) odd. Like, okay, so when I watched it this time, I was like, why is there a ping pong table down there? Because I, I, I think it's their game room. Yeah, I think so, too. I think it's a dual-purpose room. Yes, that they would be so callous about what they are doing that they would use it as a foosball room. Like, th- that's how little they care about the people they are destroying. Yeah, I would agree with you. Because you know Stephen Root's room, although we don't see it, it's clearly like a medical room that he is in. He right. is already dressed and prepped for surgery. So, like, they take care with those people. You know, right. the, I don't even know what you'd call those people, like, who are ultimately taking over control of the bodies, but, like, they just don't care about the people they're actually subjugating into the sunken place. Yeah. Well, you know what you did see down there? Lots of wood paneling. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring this up on this episode because you have a clear theory about wood paneling, and I think this movie sort of disproves it because they're very wealthy and they have wood paneling Mikey I yeah the new theory is that you're just a bad person (laughs) well that's a theory I cannot refute (laughs) (laughs) having had wood paneling as a child so as he comes to there's an old TV in front of him that turns on and it's an informational video narrated by Roman Armitage who's Rose's grandfather who has been dead we know he's dead and he's basically explaining you've been chosen because of your physical advantages to be part of something greater which is such a callous way of thinking about it to just say that like you have a unique ability which means you are advantaged despite the disadvantages you have clearly had (laughs) that we will just take it from you because colonizers anyway because that's what they've been doing for a thousand years Yeah, yeah so he describes it he refers to the procedure as the coagula procedure and he doesn't actually go too deep into it but he just does say that my son's a neurosurgeon he developed the procedure and maybe one day you'll enjoy being members of the family meaning literally replacing members of the family and then he just says behold the coagula and all of the text is the same as the credits at the beginning of the movie so you mean font yes so then the teacup appears on the TV and he falls back into the sunken place. Meanwhile, Rod is filing a police report because Chris has now been missing for two days. He was supposed to come back, never did. Which, honestly, 
for Rose to not have a backup story about why someone wouldn't be there to pick up the dog. I don't know why. That's what I'm thinking. Like, they wouldn't need that yet because he was supposed to be there all weekend. He wants to leave early. No, no, no. He's a day late. It's He's two days late. It's Tuesday. He was supposed to be back on Sunday. Oh, shit. I didn't realize that much time passed. Yes. Yeah, Rose is not actually a great kidnapper because, like, he has a lot of people asking where he is and they know where he went. And he knows her full name. And she used her real name she's the worst but he says when he's filing the police report that he was supposed to come back sunday but it's been two days and he hasn't seen him so he tells them that he was last seen with rose armitage and then also gives them the information about andre hayworth but they don't believe him and in fact they call other people in to listen to the story and then they all laugh about it but they basically don't file the missing persons report it's not isn't successful well it isn't successful because they think it's a joke or they think he's just crazy or whatever right so he comes home and one of the things that he has crossed out on the notepad is just magic question mark and then he crosses it out and just says magic ain't real (laughs) (laughs) i love it it gets me every time so he decides to call rose she picks up and she's like chris left two days ago we're all freaked out and so he tries to record the call okay so i want to point out something here that part of this scene where you see her and she is dressed like she's a member of the aryan nation right now yes (laughs) she is doing all of this in vo And you can tell because her facial features are not matching up what she's saying. Um, I mean, I was under the impression that that she was deliberately acting callous. Watch it again. And it's it's clearly VO because even like some of the words she's saying don't line up exactly with her mouth. Hmm, But they're doing that so she can... She's probably saying it in the actual, like, file, like the raw footage of that. She's probably saying it like a robot. You can't, yeah, and you just probably can't hear it. Yeah. No, so they just replace right. the audio with her actually saying it emotionally. But it's such a good juxtaposition of what she's saying and what she right. actually is, like, feeling in that moment, which is nothing. Right. She doesn't feel sadness at all about what's happening. And it's just really, really well done. I liked the way they did that a lot. Yeah. So he starts asking her questions of like, what cab company did you use? And she, I think, catches on to him recording her because she then starts to accuse him of like, well, you always thought like I could tell you were looking at me. You always wanted to fuck me. And he's like, he said your mama hypnotized him. And she's just like, you're just calling because you're obsessed with me. And it's deflection. So whatever he records is not useful. But he now knows that she's lying. Clearly. And he even like hangs up and he's like, oh, my God, she's a genius. Yeah, (laughs) lying bitch. So meanwhile, Chris is still in the basement. When the TV comes on again, it's Steven Root. And they reveal that there's an intercom in the room so he can talk to him. And Steven Root basically tells him what's going to happen. Yeah. That he's going to be essentially placed into his body and that Chris will still be along as a passenger, but he'll have no control. And this is also where we find out that Jeremy's wrangling methods sound less pleasant because he's just straight up kidnapping people because he's crazy. Yeah, we now know that he's the one who kidnaps the guy at the very beginning. He kidnapped Andre. Yeah. And he, at a certain point, just says, why black people? And he just says, who knows? People want to change. I don't care about your color. What I want is deeper. I want your eyes, man. I want those things you see through, which again is that idea of colorblindness. Right. And he just says, okay, I'm done. And they turn the TV off and 
Chris kind of scratches at the chair and realizes he can pull some of the stuffing out of it. We see the spoon on the TV again, and he seems to pass out again, or so we think. Yeah. I loved this reveal, although we're not quite there yet, but I loved it. Yes. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, Bradley Whitford is getting ready to do surgery. Jeremy comes in with a fancy wooden box containing his tools, and they cut into Stephen Root's head and literally just like toss the top of his head and a section of his brain into the garbage. Yeah, the brain stem, not the brain root. Yep, because it's Stephen Root. (laughs) Yes. So... We cut back to the basement where Jeremy wheels a wheelchair down into the basement, unbuckles Chris from the chair, then drilling into Stephen Root's head. Meanwhile, back in the basement, Chris stands up behind Jeremy and knocks him unconscious with a bocce ball, which, by the way, could fucking kill you. Bocce balls are heavy as shit. He hits him twice in the head. You see the blood pooling in the like surgical cap and then he lands on the ground and you see all that blood come out of him. That would kill you. Like his skull is fucked in that scene. Yeah. And we reveal that he had cotton from the chair in his ears. My only, this is one of the few things that bugged me about the movie the first couple times I watched it. And then this time I think I figured it out where I couldn't figure out how he got it up there. We see him bend all the way down to try and bite at the restraints. So I feel like he would have the range of motion to do that. Here's my theory. Okay. The the chair is stuffed. Yeah. Which makes it kind of pillowy. If he pulled enough cotton out, he would be able to slip his hand through the restraints. Because the restraints are tied with the chair at full loft. So if he takes the the puffy part out, he could probably slip his hand out and then slip it back in so nobody knows. I mean, that does make sense. So back in the surgical room, this is where he's scooping that part of the brain out. Uh, Or like he pulls that one bone out, he pulls the the skull out, and then he just does like a like flirk into the trash and he calls for jeremy but he's not back yet and so he walks out into the hallway to look for jeremy and as he does chris impales him with the taxidermy deer from the basement oh man yeah which is perfect we didn't really dwell on how much bradley whitford hates deers but it's a huge conversation at the beginning of the movie so (laughs) for him to just get impaled with one is so great it is great yeah he collapses to the floor dead uh and as he does he knocks over a lamp that actually ends up lighting part of that room on fire it's just a candle like they just have loose candles in the surgical theater which is a bad move like there's so much pure oxygen in there like that thing would light up super easily but it's a scented candle because you know bodies smell weird yeah pumpkin (laughs) spice yeah (laughs) scalpel suction Latte. (laughs) So he runs downstairs. He runs into Georgina slash grandma in the kitchen. She runs away from him and he grabs his phone off the counter. So now he has his phone. He sees Missy. She lunges for the teacup between them on the table and he shatters it. She grabs a letter opener and stabs through his hand. He handles this like a boss. I love it. I love the turn where he's just like, fuck all of you. I'm done being polite to you. I'm going to kill everybody in this house. And you're just like, yes. Yeah, I was on board for this. Yeah. So the letter opener slices through his hand and then he uses his hand to stab her through the eye to kill her. They don't show it, but it's brutal. and I loved it for him. So good. So he runs out into the main section of the house and Jeremy is miraculously not dead and up. And Jeremy tries to strangle him to death. But Jeremy is actually not that strong. He is not an actual UFC fighter, even though he wants to think he is. So he's trying to count him out like it's a UFC match. And he just ends up stabbing him in the leg with the letter opener. And then he kicks 
his face in. I loved it so much. Kicks him to death. And you're just like, yes. Because he's choking him, like you were saying, and he's like counting him down, like one, one thousand, yeah. two, one thousand. Like, and he's not choking him hard enough. I feel like yeah, you're yeah, an it's idiot not anyway. happening. I hate when that happens. When I'm telling somebody to choke me and it's not hard enough, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, gross. I mean, I'm not kink shaming. It's fine. But like, be safe. It sounded very much like that, what Just you were doing. Make sure you're squeezing the sides, not the top. That's all I'm saying. Uh, anyway. Don't tell me what to do. I mean, I just want to make sure you don't crush your esophagus and you die. Like, there's a right way to choke somebody. Anyway. But that's how I want to go. Oh, my God. Uh, anyway, so he's. <laughs> But Chris is reaching for the door, and he notices that whenever he reaches for the door and opens it a little bit, Jeremy kicks it closed. So that's he uses that. I love that. Because yes. he opens the door, and as Jeremy like kicks up, that's when he can finally have enough like leverage to stab him in the leg with his, that same pointer that just killed his mom. I was like, hell yeah, Chris. Outthink yep. this racist nutbag. Yep. So he kicks his face in, grabs the keys to his car, and runs outside. We cut upstairs to Rose's room where she's eating dry fruit loops with a glass of milk. Which is insane, right? Like, Okay, I have eaten dry fruit loops, not because of this movie, just because I fucking love fruit loops. I used to eat dry cereal at work a lot because I could just have a bowl and snack on it and not have to worry about the mess of having milk. It tastes like candy. I mean, like, there's nothing yeah. wrong with dry cereal. Uh, when I was a kid, like, we were poor. Like, I would eat dry cereal because we couldn't afford milk. Like, I know what that yeah. life is like. There's a glass of milk next to her. What the fuck are you doing? Like, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Bonkers. I mean, I was sure that you two would be like down for dry cereal and a glass of milk because your stance on pills. But I mean, clearly milk goes with cereal. I don't drink milk unless it's in a cereal bowl or with chocolate yeah, chip same. cookies. Yeah. I have the same relationship with milk that you do, Mikey. Like I have a yeah. Santa okay. Claus relationship with milk. <laughs> it goes with cookies. I don't really love cereal, so I don't really eat a lot of cereal, but I don't either. I don't eat cereal either. Yeah. I'm just picturing that time you threatened to stir my cereal with <laughs> your genitals. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Like legit. I was picturing Mikey with a toucan nose stirring your cereal with his dick. Ugh. And listen. That is a sexy image, baby. <laughs> no, no. If anyone wants to, like, mock up that merch design, I'll happily slap it on a shirt and put it up for sale. What's Toucan Sam's, like, catchphrase? Follow your nose, Mikey. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Except for Mikey, it should, it should be follow your nards. Yeah. Yeah, um, follow your nards. So Rose is researching her next victim in this scene. Yeah. She's researching like a famous basketball player. Yeah. Which like, how do you kidnap a famous, like their whole. Yeah, they're not great at not having a paper trail. Right. Rose is listening to I Had the Time of My Life while she's doing this. She literally delights in people's suffering. Yeah. She is a horrible person. Yeah, she is, I think, the worst person in this movie. And that's I think saying so too. something. Yeah. Uh, so Chris gets in the car and there's a metal helmet in the passenger seat, which the opening scene was a little bit longer originally and they cut it down. But essentially, Jeremy would wear that metal helmet to kidnap people. Well, and you yeah. see him wearing that metal helmet. That's how you sort of know it's his car. You recognize the car right. and then you see the helmet that he was wearing when he took Andre from the beginning. Yeah. Well, I took it as like it's like a knight's helmet and then it's like a white car. So it's like a white knight. Yeah, like yep. a Ku Klux Klan yep. kind of Yes, yeah. exactly. I will actually, I have notes on what it is. So, yep. like, he is the kind of douchebag that definitely collects swords. But I'm not saying that that makes you a bad person. Not all sword guys are bad people, but most bad people are sword have guys. swords. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there you go. Agree, yeah. 
I've met a lot of really cool people who have really cool sword collections, Jake. Yeah. <laughs> we will be always safe from zombies, melee weapons. Yes. Come at me. All day. All day. <laughs> There's no waiting period on a saber, Paige. Uh, it's a katana. Anyway. <laughs> Lord. Anyway, he drives away in the car and calls 911. And as he's driving away, he hits Georgina as she tries to run across the road. Yeah. He sees her passed out in the road and he questions whether or not he should pick her up and against his better judgment he helps her he puts her in the car with him meanwhile back at the house rose loads a hunting rifle and sends walter the groundskeeper to run after the car Meanwhile, Georgina comes to in the car and is very clearly still grandma oh, yeah. in the face. And she starts beating the shit out of him. And just says, you ruined my house. And they crash the car. She dies in the crash. And he looks out the side mirror or goes to look out the side mirror. And Rose shoots the mirror out because she is caught up with them with the rifle. Walter takes off after him, tackles him, and is trying to crush his head. Yeah. But he manages to use the flash on his phone and Walter stands up and turns to Rose and says, let me do it. Meaning, let me shoot him. I knew immediately because Walter's a great actor that he was going to shoot Rose. Because when he's strangling Chris, it's a different person there. And then when he stands up and says, let me shoot him, it is completely somebody else. Like he looks a lot more like he did in the photos. Yeah. With Rose before the trophy photos. Right. Yes. So when he shoots her, I was like, I knew it. And yes. Yep. So he caught he shoots her. Then he cocks the rifle and unfortunately dies by suicide. I would imagine because being a passenger in your body is a horrifying traumatic experience. Like, yeah. And you have no idea how much longer he's going to have control. Like. There's a lot of unanswerables there. Like, I don't think that all you have to do is give them one flash and they're back to normal, right? Uh, No, they have a piece of someone else's, well, I mean, in the world. Right. They have a piece of someone else's brain inside them. I think there's also an argument to be made that we don't know which piece pulls that trigger. I think Grandpa would have tried to kill Chris before he killed himself. Same. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. That makes sense. I definitely think it's the guy who was taken from before. Yeah. Just like, if I can't have me, you certainly can't have me. Which I tell the people all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I hate that that's the outcome for his character. But at the same time, I understand that motivation. Like. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's dark. It's very dark. Yeah. It's very dark. Rose is still alive. She's pulling for, she's reaching for the gun. Chris grabs it from her and just pulls it out of her reach because he kneels down and strangles her or attempts to strangle her. And she starts out saying like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I love you. But then she smiles. Dude, that's Revealing that it was so fake and it's so creepy. Oh my God. It's Mm. so creepy. And the reason she smiles is because she sees blue red and white lights in the distance and they light up the area behind chris's head and he immediately you could see it on his face he realizes he is a black man caught strangling a white woman in the street yeah next to a dead person and she has been shot and his prints are all over that gun like there's no way he's not in trouble for this yes and she immediately knows that the quote unquote balance of power is in her favor because she immediately cries wolf and is just like help help he's hurting me and he puts his hands up because he knows but it turns out that in the car is rod 
And so he limps to the car, gets into the passenger seat, and a beat passes. They they let it sit for a second, and then Rod just says, I mean, I told you not to go in that house. Not now, <laughs> Rod! Can we at least get away from the scene, please? No, that would totally be me if I picked I somebody up. I know it would be you. Honestly, Mikey, I could see a lot of you in Rod, honestly. <laughs> then he does my favorite, because he just says, how did you find me? And he just says, I'm T.S. Motherfucking, motherfucking A! a. Yeah. We handle shit! That's what we do! I loved it. Consider the situation fucking handled. Yeah. And they leave her in the road bleeding out as they drive away. And, and that's, that's the, the movie. movie. Give me some final thoughts on Get Out. Great. Absolutely love it. I think this should be required viewing. I agree. It's such a good movie. For children. Well, I don't know. It's probably for a certain age group. Five-year-old. Maybe not children. Yeah, I don't know, Mikey. That might not be a great. Infants. Yeah. I mean, get them young. Why not? I think maybe, you know, at a certain age. As your parents, you guys decide. I don't give a fuck. I'm not the boss of you guys. But yeah, like, I really do feel like everyone should see this movie. And when we talk box office, it'll seem like everyone did. Yeah. So do we want to hop into fun facts? Yeah, yeah. I really do feel like we covered a lot of our final thoughts while we were talking about this movie. Because this one is very, very dense with, like, emotional stuff. So yeah, Paige, hit us with some fun facts. Hit us with some fun facts. Get Get out. out. Fun Fun facts. facts. Nailed it. In 2018, Jordan Peele won the Oscar for the Best Original Screenplay for Get Out, making him the first black filmmaker to ever earn the honor. Really? That's great. It's not great that it took till 2018, but it's great that he won it. Agreed. Uh, Let's talk about alternate endings. Oh, man, I'm not going to like this. There are a couple different rumors, but the basic... I've seen the alternate ending. They shot part of it. There, There's alternate options for it, too, where the original one he wanted was having the police show up and arrest Chris and then mm-hmm. a shot of Rod visiting him in jail, basically saying that he's going to get life in prison. Now, there is also rumored to be an alternate ending where the police arrive. It is the police from the 911 call. And Rod doesn't make it in time, and Chris is shot on sight. And it's a direct reference to Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where he's shot on sight. But it's also referential of just police violence in general. Uh, And essentially, it was meant to say that all of this time and all the things that we have learned and still nothing has changed. Yeah. The movie itself was inspired by an Eddie Murphy routine. Really? uh, Where, yes. Wow, okay. In Eddie Murphy's comedy special, Delirious, uh, he has a bit where he asks why white people don't just leave a house when a ghost shows up. And basically says, like, in the Amityville horror, the ghost told them to get out of the house. Now, that's a hint and a half for your ass. If a ghost said, get the fuck out, I would just tip the fuck out the door. Yeah. And so it's that idea of why didn't you leave? There are these red flags. Why didn't you leave? Yeah. Um, But he has also said that the title is a reference to what he hears black audiences shout during horror films and theaters where... Often they would yell for a character get to get out. And in this movie, both Rod and Andre say it to Chris. Yeah. But it's almost this movie almost asks for you to do that where it makes it OK to have that outburst and be like, yes, get out <laughs> like run. I mean, people on screen are saying it to him. Yeah. The sunken place. So the sunken place is a metaphor and it is multi-layered. The main theme of this movie's horror The basis of it is the real world concept of a system silencing you no matter how loud you are. So in interviews, Jordan Peele has basically said that the sunken place is a metaphor for the marginalization of black horror movie audiences. 
They're a loyal horror movie fan base, but they're relegated to the theater and not on the screen, which watch horror noir. They discuss this at length. It's so good. But that's his metaphor for the sunken place. It's this ability to shout and try to be heard and be a passenger, but never be allowed to drive. Huh, I like that. This movie also has some nods to the idea of the Holy Grail. So the helmet is supposed to look like a Knights Templar helmet. Yeah, I mean, it does. It looks very medieval. Yeah. And it's an element of a backstory that Jordan Peele gives to that group that are known as the Red Alchemists. It's never mentioned in the movie, but they all have red pocket squares. Interesting. Okay. But that's what their group is called. They believe that they're destined for immortality and deity status. And over hundreds of years, they have worked to figure out through science a way to achieve the power of the Holy Grail. Also, I mentioned he did the voice of the deer, but he also does the voice of there's a commercial that airs in the background for the United Negro College Fund. And that's his voice saying, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. (laughs) That's awesome. He talks about this in both Eli Roth's History of Horror, but also a little bit in Horror Noir. He views Get Out as a possession film. I mean, I could see that. It sort of is. Like, also sort of, well, and I haven't seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but it feels like it would be that sort of a vibe. I don't know that that's true, but. Yeah. The scene where Walter runs directly at Chris and essentially at the audience full speed, because we're seeing through Chris's point of view, is a knowledge to the depth of field used in North by Northwest. I was going to say this whole movie sort of feels Hitchcockian in a way, although I've not ever seen a Hitchcock horror film. I've only seen North by Northwest, Mm. but his use, even the score is somewhat similar to a North by Northwest sort of movie. Yeah. Get Out was the first February release since Silence of the Lambs to get a Best Picture nomination. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is super early in the year for a Best Picture nod. That's super early. And February is usually where they dump movies that they don't expect to win anything. Yeah, or make a lot of money. So it proves them wrong twice. But he considers Silence of the Lambs kind of an inspiration for the film. And it's part of why he frames Georgina's introduction in Get Out at the end of a hallway, the same way that Hannibal Lecter is introduced. No shit. Okay. Yeah. They're also Silence of the Lambs and Get Out are two of a very, very, very small number of horror films to ever be nominated for Oscars, let alone win. Yeah. So they are in rarefied air at that point. And Lil Ral Howry has said that real life TSA agents constantly recognize him since the film's release. I am sure that is true. (laughs) And those are your fun facts, because we peppered in a bunch as we went. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for those fun facts, Paige. They were, in fact, awesome. So let's talk box office. So what do you think the budget for Get Out was? And remember, it came out in 2017. I actually don't think the budget is that high. Okay. I'm going to say 15. Yeah, that's about where I'm at, too. Maybe 20. Okay, cool. So the production budget was $5 million. Damn. Fuck! Damn it! Yes, Jordan Peele! This looks so good for $5 million. This looks amazing for $5 million. It's not quite a single location movie, but it's almost a single location movie, which really brings the scope of a budget down. And, oh man, this printed money. Okay, so it came out. As you mentioned, in February, it was February 24th, 2017, with its opening weekend. It was number one in the box office that weekend. It beat yes. the Lego Batman movie. 
It beat John Wick Chapter 2, which was number three that week. It beat The Great Wall was number four. And Fifty Shades Darker was number five. (laughs) What do you think Get Out made its opening weekend? Oh, this movie printed money. I would say, I think it made 30 its first weekend. I think it made more. I think it it did in the 40s. I think it's like 42. Okay, it made $33.3 million. Page was closer, but still a lot of money. It went on to make... A hundred and seventy six million dollars in the box office just domestically. Domestically, yep. holy just shit. domestically. Internationally it made another seventy six point four million dollars for a total of two hundred and fifty two point five million dollars. So worth it. In worldwide box office. And then it made another almost fourteen million in domestic DVD and Blu-ray sales. This made so much money, man. You love to see it. You do love to see it. And I yep. really do feel like the success of this type of movie has really given way to a lot of studios being like, oh, maybe we should allow people like Jordan Peele to create a lot of this type of horror, which I think is great, or this type of movie, which I think is great. Well, also, Jordan Peele starts a production company after this movie that accepts submissions. Awesome. So, like, they start backing other projects. But what this movie does more than anything is gives his name a whole new meaning. Oh, yeah. Because before this movie, Mm -hmm. he was a comedy guy. He was a sketch guy. We weren't really sure why he was doing a horror movie. He was because he liked it, but, like, no one was sure it was going to work. And now, when you talk to people about modern horror, his name comes up. Yeah. Like, that's how much of a shift this movie is for both his career and just horror in general. And I love it. It's such a good movie. It completely holds up. I I love this movie. Yeah, agree. 100%. But that is your box office. Mike, you want to hit him with that scary scale? Yeah, scary scale listeners, a scale of 1 to 10 of how scary we found the film as we watched it today. Not a scale of quality, but a scale of scary. Uh, our one example is Ghostbusters, and our 10 example is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Paige. Maybe a 2 or 3. The first time I saw it, this was closer to like a 5 for me. But I would give it like a 2 today. I'm going to give it a four. There were only really two like jumpy type moments and even those weren't super scary. And that's what really like pushes a movie up the scary scale for me. But this is like oppressively tense. It's very suspenseful and it is like hard to watch on some level. But man, it's great. Like, but I I would give it a four. I think when I watch it again, it'll probably be a one or a two. When I saw it in theaters, I think I'm going to, I'm with Paige. I think I gave it like a five. I think today I I took a one. Yeah. But like, I I like it a lot. Oh yeah. Yeah. Quality is like a 10. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the scary scale. Yeah. Yeah. Mikey. So do you have a review for us to read? Yes. Awesome. Well, who's you going to read this week? A Howard five, 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 just three fives. Well, what does A. Howard Fives have to say? Nom nom, that's a good podcast. <laughs> okay, cool. Gosh, I heart you guys. Oh, I listen to lots of podcasts, but I find myself looking forward to this one above all others each week. Not sure if it's the friendly chemistry between hosts, the in-depth movie discussion, the call of Cthulhu. Oh, I got it right. Did we do that? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think we ever, t- well, I mean, we talk about Lovecraft sometimes. Or an addictive chemical that makes me crave it fortnightly. That's from Romance in the Pod. That right there is a, yeah. um, so I married an axe murderer reference. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. that's from. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But whatever it takes, thanks, guys. Five stars. Well, thank you very much, A. Howard 555s. So this week, you guys made me watch Get Out. What are you making me watch next week? Well, next week, we are delving into 
kind of classic black exploitation horror. Okay. With Blackula. What? Mm-hmm. I've never seen it. I'm looking forward to it. I've also never seen it, but I've heard I've heard about it obviously because it's like it, the black exploitation movie, right? Yeah. Well, and, and when we go through it, I do want to talk about a little bit of the history of where that movie fits in the horror landscape okay. because it does have kind of a story behind it. Just to make sure I have the right one, it's the 1972 Blackula. That's correct. So your homework for next week is to watch Blackula. So guys, if you like this show but want to hear this power thruple on another movie review show about romance and romantic comedies, check out Romancing the Pod where Mikey, Paige, and I break down and make fun of romantic movies. It's a lot of fun, guys. Check it out. If you want to follow us on social, please do. We are at Horror Virgin or online at HorrorVirgin.com. If you want to follow us all individually, you can do that as well. Paige is at Paige Wesley on Twitter or Rampage Wesley everywhere else, including TikTok. Mikey is at mrandolph24 and I am at Todd J. Awesome. If you like the show so much and you want to help financially support it, please do by going to patreon.com slash horror virgin where you can get a lot of great levels and a lot of great stuff like bonus episodes, director's cut episodes where they're a little bit longer and you get them actually a day earlier mm-hmm, than the mm-hmm. regular feed drop. We do a lot of great things like listener requests and stuff like that. So guys, check out yeah. the Patreon and help support the show. If If you can't financially support the show, that's understandable. That's fine. But if you want to hang out with us on the daily, join the Facebook group uh, at facebook.com slash group slash horror virgin. We also link it like once a week. So just find it there and join the awesome Facebook group. And literally we're in there talking every day. It's awesome. And if you want to check out our Twitch stream, we're at twitch.tv slash Todd awesome. Well, we will be playing horror video games. So if you have always wondered what it would be like to watch me get scared, you can now do that on Twitch while I play these horror games. It's, Twitch.tv slash Todd Awesome, guys. Check it out. It's a lot of fun for you. Not a lot of fun for me. This episode brought to you by Nick B. Nick B, fun fact. Oh, yeah? He's really nice. I honestly Uh get that vibe. He was our first $50 patron, and he has consistently been at that level since the beginning. Nice. You got to be a nice guy to do that. So, Nick B, thank you so much for being you. This episode also brought to you by... Ori. Ori! And Ori's great. They gave me a lot of great advice. Uh, one of which was that I should not be going to my uh, girlfriend at the time's house to visit her family. And uh, I eventually realized that it's because she was going to cheat on me and it was a horrible thing to be a part of. So thank you, Ori, for trying to give me a heads up super early on. So this episode is <laughs> also brought to you by the letter Jeff. And Jeff wants you to check out his podcast, Kissing Jessica Jones, where each week, They break down a new episode of Jessica Jones, the Netflix Marvel TV show, or Agent Carter, which is also a Netflix Marvel TV show, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. Sounds right. Yeah. But guys, check it out. It's called Kissing Jessica Jones. This episode also brought to you by Awesome Possum Blossom, and Awesome Possum Blossom wants me to give you some awesome possum facts, so here's one for you. Female possums often go to the movies with multiple male possums and at the same time as a sign of friendship. Unfortunately, male possums misconstrue this as a date. That's good. That's a good one. That was I'll, I'll get a it. specific dig possum fact from Mickey Mac. So, Mickey Mac, you're a dick, but I love you. This episode also brought to you by Brandon's Bug Business. And Brandon's Bug Business is actually called Bug Cage Company on Facebook. And if you have any needs for centipede, millipede, lobster, scorpion, spider, just reach out to Brandon at Bug Cage Company and he will ship you some bugs. 
Did I say lobster? It's fine. It's fine. This episode also brought to you by Tia, and Tia enjoys listening to the podcast to relax because her teenager's driving her crazy. And how did her teenager drive her crazy this week, Mikey? Uh, Tia actually stole a car. Tia stole a car or her teenager stole a car? Her teenager stole a car. Oh, wow. And then hit a deer with it. What? On purpose. Oh, no. Wow. That is like next level. I don't know. Tia, I'm so sorry I have to deal with that. But with that, we now return you to another episode of uh, The, the Patreonicals. Dave dies of cancer because he listened to Todd's voice. Very wow. Slowly. Out of the gate, I kill someone with cancer. That's amazing. Okay. That's bad. Yikes. Isaac eats Dave's remains and mm. also gets cancer from wow. Todd's voice. Wow. Okay. All right. Like a, like a woman, old lady who swallowed a fly kind of deal. Um, <laughs> There was an old Dave who heard a Todd's voice. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. We're at CNN Tower. Uh, they've they've stopped the people. Most evil Matthew is like awkwardly making out uh, with Kaylee in front of everyone. It's like a I don't know like a they didn't win, but like he like thinks they won because he's like the most evil, so he's like kind of cocky about it. But they're making out like you might do it like a Chewies at a Chewies, definitely at a Chewies. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, Aaron, the Moon General, was like, "Oh my god!" And most evil Matthew trips her, and she falls while to the he's making yeah. out. He trips mm-hmm. her. That's some great perif skills. Like he's got a great peripheral vision there. Uh, they get back into their. Flying machine that I haven't <laughs> quite figured out yet, and um, Danielle uh, and Dreskel, they're holding hands and crying, but they have to go anyway because they're wearing the control collars, right? And uh, like I, I feel some like some sparks, right? But they can't really act on it because of the control collars, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. Domasaurus has been kidnapped by Scott the Thing and Karoon, and they're trying, they're holding him back. He's trying to get on the flying machine, but it takes off, and. Uh, Kate uses her psychic powers to control him, and then he's he's like roaring like the T Rex in Jurassic Park because he's like sad that he can't go because he's all messed up because of the control collars. Even though it kind of got there's some residual effects. You guys know what I'm talking about. But like he yeah. his control collar is still on though, right? I think they cut it off last week, if I remember correctly. But oh, okay. He's, so Amy, the astronaut, uh, her and Eddie, since he is the animal expert, are like, we've got to do surgery. So let's do it right here in CNN Towers. So they, do sur- <laughs> they do surgery on him. They do surgery on Domasaurus. Are we talking like cosmetic surgery? Are they like giving him longer arms? or We're talking like they go in to fix him into his brain. Open T-Rex skull soul from surgery. Okay. That's what they're doing right now. All right. And then Wes, the ghost in the future, was like, you guys don't even know like what's really happening is both evil Matthew, he is going to destroy Disney World very soon. Okay, wait, the one in Florida, not the one in California? Both, simultaneously. <gasps> what? You have to stop them. It's like a Superman situation, like which nuke are you going to stop? Exactly. Yeah. So, Do you love Metropolis more than Lois Lane Superman? Right. But obviously, he's gonna, they're going to pick Florida. Like, we're going to do that. We're going to pick the Florida Disney World. I'm definitely going to let Disney World explode, for sure. Like, if I had to make that decision, <laughs> Disney World is gone. But anyway, that's it for Patreon. Well, if you want to find out next week which Disney World or Disneyland makes it, tune in next week on another episode of uh, The Patreonicals. That's going to be it for us, you guys. I'm Paige. I'm Mikey. And I'm your horror virgin, Todd. And keep it ooky spooky. Yeah. Have a great week. Bye! Get out, nerds!